are listening to Fanholes, a podcast for fans by the fans. Secret Brothers. I have clinical. You guys are like wasting my time right now. Hey, baby. What's going on? This is my microphone voice. <laughs> Where do you buy those at? I need one. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck is going on. I didn't invent honorable mentions, mister. <laughs> I have a headset. It looks way cool. You should all be jealous. I, uh, we are. I'm with Mike on that one. I'm a woman! <laughs> it is our show. It's called Fan Holes, not, you know, what you guys want. <laughs> <laughs> We do a podcast? What the fuck? My name is Nick Knight. I am a vampire who has lived for hundreds of years, tortured by the horrible things I've done. Uh, hi Nick. I'm Angel, and I'm pretty much the same. But I have also sworn off drinking human blood. Uh, yeah. Oh. But what you might not know is that I am also a detective who seeks justice during the night. Yeah. I actually am a detective as well, of sorts. On a police force? No, private sector. Well, I guess that's a little different. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, I have a good one. I have a son, an impossible child born of two vampires. He's a teenager now, but he was kidnapped when he was just a baby, raised in a hell dimension by my mortal enemy, and then returned to fulfill a prophecy in which he impregnates my girlfriend, who would give birth to a higher being that wanted to enslave the world, and then kill that being and go crazy, after which I erased his memories and implanted him with new ones so he'd have a happy life. But he kind of remembers the other stuff again now, but maybe not all the time. Wow, I don't have that. Well, I also like listening to Fan Holes, the pop culture podcast made for the fans by the fans. Hey, me too. Then I guess we're both cool. Yes, we are. Hey guys, welcome back to another spooktacular episode of Fanholes Podcast. Hey, what's up guys? This is Derek, Derek WC, and I'm joined tonight by one of my fellow Fanholes. Why don't you give a shout out and let everybody know who's here with me tonight? Hey, it's Mike, and I no longer have my soul. As you can tell, we're talking about some some creepy, spooky stuff, and the plan moving forward is to have an entire month, if you will, called Fanhole's Fright Fest, and what we're basically planning on doing is, this is this is shamelessly stolen from a podcast that, that I really enjoy listening to called the Supermates Podcast, and as you're listening to this now, they are in the midst of of their House of Frankenstein segment over on Supermates, where they like to discuss a kind of film or movie, and then they like to discuss a comic book. But the common theme is, you know, it's Halloween theme. And we've had Halloween episodes on the past before, but I think this is the first time we're trying to do a whole theme month where we do all Halloween for October. So that's that's what we're shooting for. Hopefully we we, we accomplish that, and that's what the plan is moving forward. 
for this particular episode, I guess the theme is kind of vampires because what we decided on discussing was based on the input of Mike, who is here with me tonight, we are going to be talking about Angel and Faith season nine, which is a comic book series that was published under the season nine banner. Road to redemption is a rocky path. There it is. Think we might make it. We might. So this is this is what when Dark Horse got the license back from IDW, is that correct? Or Yes. Okay. So so Yeah, like they IDW had like Angel and Dark Horse had Buffy. So I guess I don't know the exact behind the scenes goings on, but it, it seems like Dark Horse just kind of like rolled over, or, or IDW just kind of rolled over, and like I guess Joss Whedon asked them, and they were like, "Okay, I guess so." <laughs> okay, okay. So yeah, and and this is sort of you know the, in this series, Angel and Faith, is titled season nine, not because there were eight seasons of an Angel and Faith TV series, but I guess because it fell under the Buffy season nine umbrella. So, so this series is taking place alongside the Dark Horse published Buffy season nine, but this series ran for 25 issues. It went from August, 2011 and it ran until August, 2013 the writer on this is a favorite of the fan holes. I know he's a favorite writer of mine and Mike's. And, uh, you know, unlike some writers on this podcast where we tend to bitch and convetch and moan, I, I can't think of a story that Christos Gage has written that I've had any problems with. And, uh, I, I, you know, not me blowing smoke up his ass or anything like that, but I, I've always enjoyed his work as a writer. So this was something for me that I was looking forward to reading in its totality. Uh, the majority of the pencils are done by a lady named Rebecca Isaacs. And then there are other occasional fill-in artists. I guess, you you know, you would call it like the break, you know, after some of the major, you know, usually they're, they're four to five issue arcs. And then there's a, what you might term like a, a break story or a fill-in story. And some of the artwork in those it, are done by different artists, such as Phil Noto, uh, Chris Samney, who you guys might know from Mark Wade's. Uh, well, I guess now it's going to be his not the most recent Daredevil run, but the, the previous most recent Daredevil run, because Chris Samney did a lot of the art on that. And then um, there, the, the, the issue I remember reading the most when we were doing those comic book sidecasts and, and Mike was talking about this series a lot. Um, what, what's interesting is David Lapham is listed as the artist on one of those fill-in issues. But then I think there's another artist whose name I did not write down that does the first half with Whistler. And I'm kind of like, I, I remember opening that up going, yeah, David Lapham's going to do this. This is going to be cool. And I looked at it. I'm kind of like, this isn't David Lapham. And then I went back and saw like, you know, pages one through, you know, I don't know, 13 were done by one artist and 13 through, you know, I don't know, 18 were done by one artist. And then from like 19 to whatever it was, it was David Lapham doing like all the kind of like the, the creepy creatures or whatever portion of that. It, it was, the, it was the thing I think that explained uh, that explained like Pearl and Nash and how they, they, uh, you, you know, basically their mom like fucked the demon and then they ran around like fucking a bunch of other demons and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, this is basically like, I, I know this was your suggestion. I was happy you suggested it because it kind of gave me an opportunity to read the entire series in its totality. I guess as I was sort of hinting at, we do have some, some fan holes, side casts, some comic side casts, which for a long time since Blip TV had kicked uh, the fan holes podcast off of Blip TV, we basically had a lot of dead links for a lot of those old side casts. I've actually been working on getting them all up on a site called Zipcast. And so now all those links are live once again. So if you're curious about what I'm talking about, I think it's episodes like maybe 34 or 35. And I know you, you brought it up early on in the side casts as well. So it may be like some early episodes, like, like 7.1 or 14 or something like that. When you're talking about the series, when it came out in 2011, but I know we also talked about it towards the, the middle and the tail end. Cause I specifically remember talking about the, the, ep- or the episode, the, the issue that featured like whistlers, I guess, backstory, if you will, in terms of this, this season nine arc. But I guess pro- probably the, the easiest thing to do, like as I'm, I'm apt and, and I like to do. And, and since they wrote it so well, since it probably was written by uh, Christos Gage and it is written so well, probably what I'll do is just read their synopsis from the opening of the first arc. And that'll hopefully give you guys the down low on basically the the Angel and Faith season nine premise, if you will. So here we go. Twilight is over. Magic is gone. Giles is dead. An angel killed him. That is the possessed by mystical forces angel. Now his need for redemption is greater than ever after Buffy and everyone else have turned their backs on him. All except one rebel slayer with a cause, Faith Lehane. Together, in the flat she inherited from Giles, Faith, and Angel, are living through the aftermath of Twilight, and keeping the London streets safe from the ever-present forces of evil. So, I mean, I, I, I think that does a pretty, I mean, you know, I'm like, why, why try to fight what's already written and done rather excellently? I mean, that, I, I thought the, the little, synopses that they give for each arc in this did a good job of filling people in if they weren't sort of a hundred percent on board with what happened before the basic premise yeah. i mean i know i know i tried to i tried to read buffy season eight and then i think <laughs> i lost track of it and then i remember reading some stuff about season nine and i just was totally not i have to be honest i wasn't super interested about it or anything but this does take place in con- in conjunction with that and I gotta say, I found it, I, I mean, I really, really enjoyed the writing. Like, I thought that Christos Gage, like, like, the, the thing I immediately noticed is, like, Rebecca Isaac's style is not, it's not a full-on, like, likeness type art, but for whatever reason, like, she really does a great job of capturing the look of faith in this series. And then I think, Christos Gage actually did a great job. Like it, it reminds me of like those like if 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 Christos Gage was doing that exercise in in writing class. Like I remember taking writing classes in college where it's like, oh, your your assignment is to write in the voice of somebody you know. Like pick out somebody and 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 write something in their voice. And I remember I did a couple 
uh, exercises like that in the writing class. And I picked a couple of different things, like maybe, you know, like it could be something from, you know, I picked something from a comic book. So I tried to write it in the voice of like Dwight McCarthy from Frank Miller's Sin City. And then there was like another thing where they're like, pick somebody, you know, from real life. So I picked this psychology professor that we all had. And he was this, uh, he was probably like my favorite psychology professor, but he was like this kind of hip, like Italian dude who like always came in dressed in like the coolest outfits and everything, like really nice, like cool clothes, like good suits and good whatever, you know, like good fun shirts. Sometimes they were a little loud, but I mean, it was all nice material and everything. And, and, and he actually taught a really great class, but he was very much the type of guy. He he had a beard and he had white hair and he was very much the kind of like bada boom bada bing like kind of guy <laughs> like that's that's how he talked and it was like so i i remember i tried doing that and and i guess maybe it was a compliment or a testament to my my capturing of that voice but i remember someone else who had that psychology class was like is that professor so and so and i kind of went yeah that's him and he's like wow that's really good you totally you you nailed how he talks and everything and i was like oh well you know he was pretty easy to do that with, you know, because the, the type of he had that kind of strong personality and he had those certain phrasings and quirks and everything. And I guess in some ways, like Faith probably has that with, you know, the five by five and are we cool G and all that kind of stuff. Like and and but but I did think like, you know, even in the first four issues and, and I think this carries on throughout the entire 25 issue run that that Christos Gage really did a wonderful job of capturing her voice. Like I never, I never read that and was like, that doesn't sound like her. I always read that and went, wow, that it's like you could almost. Uh, who's the actress again? Elijah Dushku, right? That's yes, yeah. It's like you could almost hear Elijah Dushku, like, like speaking to you off the damn page. Feel natural? <sighs> it's like riding a biker. That that's what I felt like. I don't know. I don't know how you took it, but no, definitely. You know, want to know something like really like interesting? Uh, Christos before, like right before he took this, when he took this job, like Christos Gage had never watched any of Angel. Like he he actually like had to binge watch it. Like he accepted the job before he like actually knew anything about like the character really. So like I I can I think it's safe to say that he he clearly did his research. Like he did his due diligence because yeah, like it really shows in the work. And I definitely, I, I agree, like, I feel like when they do comics or, like, of, uh, like, properties that have, like, live-action TV shows, like, it's always very hit or miss for me, like, the art, because, like, sometimes, like, you get someone who draws, like, who tries to, like, try to draw it, like, sort of photorealistically, and, like, it looks kind of weird, but then you get people like Rebecca Isaacs who kind of like make it look like I, I don't know how to describe it. Like like you said, it's clear like all the expressions of like all the characters are like bang on to like the actors, but it doesn't look awkward or anything. Like like they were trying to like draw from like stills or something. Yeah, yeah. I I think I think sometimes I've heard that criticism a lot where. You know, I, I think in that one IDW Star Trek series, we Star Trek Doctor Who series we looked at, you know, one of the criticisms of that art was, yes, it looks photorealistic, but 
you know, if you're taking it from a photo still, the the dynam, I guess, dynamic poses, you know, the dynam dynamism. I can't even say it. The dynam. Ugh, why can't dynamism? I? Dynamism. Thank you. See, I can't say it, but <laughs> but you know that that dynam dynamism. I'm like uh, of 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 poses is somehow eliminated because you're 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 just sort of capturing the still image and it's not it's not quite in motion but I I think with with Rebecca Isaac's art it's like she has her own distinct style and and the action beats and all that kind of uh, stuff are are in the comic book but then you know you it, it's like that weird subtle thing of the the way a dimple is or the way like like it's that that kind of notion of how every line you draw adds a bit of age to someone. And it seems like she expertly uses the right lines at the right place on the face to just convey either, like you're saying, like an expression, but also just like, it's one of those things where you're like, it looks like her, but it's not photorealistic, if that makes any sense. Like, and, and, and it's just like she manages to capture that line and the minimalism of the line well enough. It's like, it's not photorealistic, but it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a traditional comic book art, but, but I still, you know, I can look at, you know, Faith and I can look at another female slayer, whether it's, you know, the, the angry slayer, you know, uh, I Adira. think Adira or whatever. It's like you can look at them both together and go, oh, those are two completely separate characters. Whereas, you know, sometimes, you know, like you're saying, in some TV or film based adaptations, you know, you put like, you know, five blonde girls together and you're just like, I can't, you know, I couldn't tell them apart. You know, I couldn't. No, I, no, I couldn't another, yeah. So uh, another testament to her, her skill as an artist, like this series features a lot of flashbacks to like Giles past. And, like, to, I guess to spoil something, like, they, they eventually do succeed in resurrecting him, but they, they screw up, and they resurrect him as a child. And what I thought was really nice is, like, in all the flashbacks, and even when Giles is a child, like, he he looks like a younger, like, Anthony Head or whatever. Like, like his, his expressions are pretty dead on to, like, the older actor, basically, even when he's, like, drawn as a, you know, young man or a child. So I thought that was really nice. Yeah, and, and unless I'm mistaken, like, the, the few times I had problems with the likenesses, it was when a fill-in artist came in. Like, I, I if yeah. I'm not mistaken, I think Phil Noto was the one who drew the issue that reintroduced Harmony and her new role in this current regime of things i guess like she she harmony comes back and she's like this big idol celebrity and she's almost i guess you know it, i guess the idea is in a world without magic and you know vampires are slightly different and the you know she is trying to promote this kind of almost pc vampire philosophy of you know you you can drain people a little bit but you have to have their permission and you can't sire any vampires and you can't kill them when you're draining them you know and it's like and apparently this has taken off and become this kind of idolized philosophy you know amongst a bunch of vampires and and she's this kind of 
idol for both, I guess, humans and vampires and everything. But that, that I think that was the first time where I was like, oh, that doesn't quite look like Harmony, but I get the idea. You know, and I, I think yeah, I it think, was like it was just close enough. Basically. Yeah, yeah, and so, so I, I, I mean, I think if Rebecca, if Rebecca Isaacs had done that issue, you know, I might have a different opinion of of the the way they captured Harmony per se. You know, so so that was and and it was interesting. Speaking of the fill-in artist, I mean, it was interesting to see Chris Samney. You know, because I was more familiar with him from the work on Daredevil. So it was kind of interesting to see him have a take on, you know, like, it's like, oh, well, you know, this is, you know, Angel and Faith. And like, I I thought he did a pretty good job. I mean, he wasn't uh, much like Rebecca Isaacs. It's not like he was going for any kind of photorealism. You know, he did his interpretations of them. And and it was interesting to see and everything. Um, Even... Yeah. Even even with the fill-in artists, I mean, there was no artist that I really, like, outright hated in this series, no, which is, no, no, like, no. I think, a huge, like, you know, plus. Yeah, I thought I thought they, they kept it pretty well. I mean, I, 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 I understand the frustration with, you know, you, you've got an art team that you get used to as you're reading an art, and then, you know, there's, there's I guess, what you call, you know, uh, and this is not to be derogatory, but obviously these guys were fill-ins you know, until Rebecca Isaacs worked on the next arc. But, you know, the the way they managed it and handled it, I thought was well done. I mean, they did a four-issue arc, they did a fill-in, they did another, like, four-issue arc, they did a fill-in, and then I think later on, maybe they did, like, a five-issue arc, and, you know, so on and so forth, you know, where there's, there were, you know, occasional breaks for, you know, basically the lead arts, you know, and, and like, it was never like, it wasn't like, you know, you, you started with part one, part two, fill an artist on part three, and then back to the regular person on part four, or like normal artist, part one, part two, part three, climactic finale with like Rob Liefeld. And you're like, ah, you know, like it's never, (laughs) it was never like that, that there, there was some jarring art change in the midst of an art, you know, like I thought that was all, you know, well-planned, you know, if they knew she needed some downtime to, you know, catch up on issues, I thought the way they paced it was well done. And I mean, obviously this is, this is, you know, a modern age comic. It's, you know, uh, quote unquote, written for the trade and everything. I mean, in that sense of it, I would be hard pressed. Like this is one of those stories where if it was on a top 10 list of my favorites, I'd be hard pressed to figure out like what one issue stood out among all 25. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'd be just lazy and be like, all right, I'm putting one through 25 on my top 10 list. Cause this is Christos Gage. It kicks ass. The art's good. And I'm just going to write about it. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't think I could single out any one of these quote unquote babies, you know, to, to idolize over the other babies. You know what I mean? I just, put all 25 babies in there and be like, they're all cute and they all have cool dimples. And, you know, it, it was all, it was all, you know, everybody was happy and then and, and they all look cute and everything. So I don't, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what I could single out. I mean, the, the first arc seems to set up the story pretty well. I mean, they're, they're operating out of London. Like we talked about in that synopsis, they're, they're, you know, basically living in Giles apartment and everything, or at least faith has inherited you know, Giles home and stuff like that. And then, you know, Angel, I guess, is kind of, you know, he's recovering from the whole Twilight ordeal. Twilight, like, I don't, I don't, 
do do we have to go into that? I was like, yeah. there, there was that one thing that was like, I I thought there were some funny lines, like for for whatever Christos Gage did research and caught up on. I I thought some people's reactions to the whole Twilight thing were kind of funny. Like I I, I didn't write down any exact quotes of the lines, but I, I remember you know some people's reactions to it were like, "Good God, man, what were you thinking?" You know, like that kind of thing. And I I, I, I mean that kind of made me laugh. So I, I thought this was kind of like a huge like repair job done on that like where Christos Gage like eventually like I think his final word on it was it it wasn't all angel's fault and like he was under someone else's influence and you know he, i guess he was trying to fix it kind of it seemed like cuz this always seems to be like this kind of underlying like I, I don't know like buffy fans like tend to like look down on angel's corner of the universe i feel like mm-hmm. sometimes i think that's like sort of reflected in buffy season 8 where angel yeah it turns out like to make a long story short, yeah, like, Twilight is basically, well, tw- Buffy in Season 8 was fighting a villain named Twilight, who turns out to be Angel in disguise, who basically wants to create this alternate dimension where, like, they'll, they'll, it'll be like a utopia and peace and whatever, and uh, long story short, it turns out, like, they reject that dimension, and it becomes, like, a like malevolent force that, like, possesses Angel and, like, forces him to fight Buffy and then kill Giles. So basically like all this whole like quote unquote season is about Angel trying to make up for that. But I don't know, like I, I like I like Angel's corner of the universe better than like Buffy's half basically. So I I'm all, I'm always going to like stand up for him and like, you know, uh make allowances for him and I think that that's kind of what Christos Gage was like doing here where he was like, "Hey, wait, you know, it wasn't his fault, really, you know. So like, drop it. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think as a counterpoint to Buffy fans who look down on Angel, I think, I, and I hope, I don't know, I don't know. I guess I'm speaking for Angel fans. I hope I am because I, I would consider myself more of an Angel fan than a Buffy fan per se. I guess, even though I, I, you know, I, I watch both shows and I've read comic versions of, of both incarnations, you know, to a degree, but. I mean, I, I would say the Angel fans perspective of Buffy season eight is, oh, man, they made Angel a supporting character again. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. the, that's the Angel fans perspective. Like to us, you know, he's a lead. Like, he's not just some guy you, you know, put in the supporting character corner and stick a mask on and try to make him like the the. uh you know, the hobgoblin murder mystery guy or whatever, you know, it's like, it's like, that was just kind of like, oh, they needed somebody cool to be under that mask. And since nobody was using Angel in the comics at the time, I guess, or I, I don't even know if that totally like negates everything that IDW was working on at the time or not. But I, it, it seemed like kind of like contradictory, I think, at at the given moment, you know, so. He does, like, Christos Gage does pay some, like, lip service, I guess, to the IDW comics, where, like, Angel kind of says, like, you know, I saw, like, what happened, like, you know, Los Angeles all went to hell, like, literally. Right, right. And stuff, and it's, like, one panel, and then he's, like, then he says something like, you know, everyone forgot about it except me. Which is, I guess, I don't know, like his way of saying how all that stuff happened and it, like it didn't really change everything in the world. Or right, whatever. right. Well, and I mean, in some ways, it's that whole, you know, 
Parallax did it, Hal Jordan didn't do it type thing, you know, and it, or yeah. it gives him it gives him another motivation where it's like, oh, well, he he saw all this shit go down. And even though you didn't see it, it, it still was heading in that general direction if he didn't step up and do something. And then it, it's like the malevolent force obviously, you know, took more control you know, which caused him to kill Giles and all that other kind of stuff, which is, you know, it's like, I, I guess that's what Angel's always been good for is to be a, a redemption story. So now he's got yet another thing on his plate to to try and redeem himself for, you know, because it seems like, I guess, if you if you watch enough of the Angel television series, I mean, after a while, it's like he saved the world enough time for you're kind of like, all right, well. You know, yeah, he did a lot of horrible shit back in the day, but he's also done a lot of good shit. So maybe you give him a pass on some of this stuff he did in the past. But now it's like they had to give him something fresh, you know, like a, a fresh yeah. kind of, you know, basically a, a fresh bad thing, you know, that, that that he had to do so that, that he could sort of redeem. A fresh, uh, like, guilt stone guilt, yeah, yeah, drag yeah, behind yeah, him yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. Um, there was, like, I, I don't know, I, I, I didn't write down a whole hell of a lot of notes because, I mean, I just kind of read through this all throughout the week and everything. I mean, I thought all the arcs were really good. I, um, I, I, I thought in the, the fill-in issue I mentioned with Harmony, there was a funny bit if people are Doctor Who fans, like, because she's supposed to be this celebrity idol at this point, there is a funny bit where it's like she's talking to David Tennant and, and there's some kind of joke about, you know, that's not a, I don't know, that are you, something about, are you happy to see Oh, she me? says something like a TARDIS and she's like, I know something else that gets, is, it gets bigger, like, or whatever. Yeah, yeah bigger inside. on the inside or whatever, you know, and, and of course she's schmoozing with them. And yeah, so there's that kind of goofy, goofy little reference there, I suppose. If you, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, who, who knows, maybe all the David Tennant fangirls are, uh, are aghast and annoyed that that scene exists, but but I, I thought it was kind of funny. And um, then the, the follow-up arc uh, to the uh, initial arc where they sort of set up all the players and the characters and everything is um, called Daddy Issues. And so this was this was pretty cool, too, because it, it basically it doesn't just revolve around Angel and it doesn't just revolve around Faith. It's like they, they each have their own sense of Daddy Issues in their own way, I suppose, because with Faith, like, her dad comes back. So there's that aspect for her. And I guess Faith, I suppose if you followed the character, I mean, I guess she's always had daddy issues since she was introduced, I suppose. And then and then on Angel's side of it, one of the surprise twists of, you know, I guess I guess there is a woman out there called Mother Superior who's been helping people forget their pain and they were trying to track down and figure out who that was, like some kind of vampire that they had never heard of, and it turns out that it's Drusilla. I'm naming all the stars. You can't see the stars, love. That's the ceiling. Also, it's day. I can see them, but I've named them all the same name. And there's terrible confusion. But I guess because of a certain type of demon that can, 
remove, I guess it feeds on like your trauma or whatever. And so that demon had actually fed on her trauma. So whereas Drusilla is normally, you know, you know, like she's kind of loopy and crazy and everything. It's like him removing that portion of her trauma to feed on basically made her go sane. And so it's this kind of interesting dynamic where, you know, to Drusilla, you know, Angel's the one who sired her as a vampire. So, you know, she also has daddy issues as well. Yeah, I thought that that was a really interesting twist. I, I like, yeah, the the whole thing. Like, you, you feel like Drusilla's kind of like, you know, I'm helping all these people and you want to stop it. And Angel's kind of like, you know... I, I don't know, it's like a weird, twisted sort of like Captain America thing. Where it's like, he's like, we don't help people that way, mister, like, or, or sister, you know? Yeah, yeah, there, there there, was that aspect to it. I mean, I get, I, I sort of understand, though, because it's like, it, it reminds me of, like, the Captain Kirk shit in, like, Star Trek Five. It's like, don't take away my pain. I want my pain. You know, like, like fuck you. Yeah. You know, like, I need my pain. I want my pain, you know, and that that's kind of what that whole arc is about with that demon, you know, it's like she, she, you know, and, and it's interesting, too, because, I mean, you do get to a point where sometimes that pain can be so overwhelming in your life, you know, even Faith at some point thinks it's a good idea for for the, basically the, the girl, uh, Nadira, you know, like she basically watched all her Slayer comrades get killed, and so she basically is kind of screwed up a lot because of that. And at one point, you know, Faith's suggestion is, well, maybe we can make that go away. I really, like, I liked the conclusion of that arc. Like, I thought that, I thought that was a very kind of sad scene where Angel kills that demon and Drusilla kind of loses her sanity again. Like, And then she, she kind of thanks him for it. Yeah, he, he does say that he's sorry when he's about to do it, too, because... He knows that, like, she was kind of, in certain regards, she was happy to be sane again, even though, I guess, she was sort of taking all these memories from all these other people. But even those people seem pretty happy to not remember all the horrible things that had happened to them. I guess it all comes to a head when, when Faith decides she wants, like, her memories taken away. And then that's when they come into conflict. But, yeah, I mean, I guess there is that aspect of the whole, you know, sister you know type thing going on but i mean it 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 made sense to me i mean yeah like ultimately like it was probably a bad idea yeah like yeah sometimes i'm kind of like but it's a fix man you know it's a quick fix but it's a fix yeah we don't fix things that way sister yeah that's that's pretty much what it is i yeah i mean i i kind of get the captain kirk point of view too (laughs) it's like i need my pain i want my pain so I, I get that. What about, you know what I wanted to ask? Are, is this the first time we've ever, like, because after this we have the fill-in issue and it's it's Giles' sisters. Is this the first time we've ever seen Giles' sisters? As as far, you mean uh, his aunts? Oh, his aunts, I guess. I'm sorry. Yeah. As, as far as I know, yes. I think Christos Gage uh, created them, or at okay. least, like, Expanded on them. Maybe they were mentioned before, but they're kind of, they're kind of interesting characters. Like they're funny too. Yeah, they yeah. did. But they're kind of like they're almost like another two harmonies almost. 
Yeah, I I don't know. They, they, they I mean, I guess this comes from the benefit or, or the hindsight of of having no actors to place them with. They, they seem a lot sluttier and cuter to me than than Harmony, but but that's just you know because I guess they're all about the, the you know they're not so much about using magic to to uh, help the helpless as Angel would. They're more about you know they've used magic over the years to preserve their youth and beauty and you know that that kind of you know it's all very cosmetic magic and and a lot of that has to do with you know their their sexuality and and, and all that kind of stuff so it's like it's it's hard not to see them as as kind of uh intriguing in that that way where you're like oh yeah they're they're you know i i think even I, I think the first thing, like when they first come in, it's like there's that funny scene where I guess one of them is telling Faith, you know, well, if Angel gets out of control with this whole trying to resurrect Giles thing, you got to be on the ball to stop him. And then the other one is kind of promoting the other angle is, you know, it'd be really great if we could resurrect, you know, our nephew, uh, you know, if we could resurrect Giles. And, you know, he's like, yeah, I'll be on the ball with that. But there's that one awkward scene where they're kind of like, he's, he's kind of like, Angel's like, I'm flattered and everything, but I'm not sure, like, and she's like, oh, you cute boy, like, I don't want to bang you, you know, like, that kind of thing, but even Angel's like, you guys are all about the sex, right, like, so. I like, I, I thought it was funny when they shot down Spike in the next arc. Yeah, yeah, that was funny, too, where he's kind of like, ladies, uh, I've got this drink, and I've got a hotel, and we can go back and get it on, and they're just kind of like, mm, I don't think so. He's like, all right, crash and burn, you know, like, carry on, you know, like, all right. Yeah, it was fun to see Spike come back. I I, I liked seeing that dynamic play again. I thought I thought Christos Gage captured it faithfully, you know, the the whole aspect of that. They're kind of bros, but they're always kind of ragging on one another. But I I think I jumped the gun. Uh, Spike's not till the arc after the next one. That's okay. I mean, basically, like, there's there's the arc with um. I guess the the arc after the auntie's fill-in issue is called Family Reunion, and I I think I remember you talking about this and how you thought it was awesome, but I don't think I I don't think this was one I ever read in terms of look or to this point, you know, until you you decided we were going to talk about this on the podcast. Like in terms of the side casts, I don't remember ever looking at these issues, the family reunion issues. But basically the the reunion is, you know, one of between, you know, Connor, who is Angel's son and himself. And so we find out that I guess Gunn's been keeping an eye on him in L.A. And, you know, basically the impetus to go search out his son because he's been trying to stay away from Connor this whole time to sort of, you know, not bring his you know, mystical demon vampire world crashing in on his son's head and then let him have kind of like a normal childhood. I guess Willow has been sent over from the, the Buffy season nine comics. And she's also sort of on a request to, I, I guess not recreate magic, but I guess she's trying to, to get access to magic again. And one of the things that was suggested was that, she could possibly go to Kortoff, which was that hellish dimension that Connor grew up in. And that's where, you know, Holtz and him lived for years and years and years. And that's why when we finally meet Connor 
in Angel series, you know, he's he's like a young teenager, you know, it's that whole, you know, cable trunks, whatever kind of, you know, future nonsense thing where, you know, the, the, the son is like a baby one moment and the next moment he's this teenage boy with a bunch of hormones and he's banging Cordelia and then we get into all kinds of creepy cookie stuff and like season three and four, but we, we won't talk about that too long. But basically they, they end up going... Willow wants them to go to Kortoth because Connor has so much experience living there and, and he's the only one who knows his way around and their goal is to go there so that Willow can sort of pluck the the magical planes, you know, because obviously there is no magic in this world currently and that's one way she's trying to get it back. I guess I, I don't know if it's obvious or not, but but ultimately there, there is a a moment where she goes all dark willow, as uh, the the kids would say, and so she kind of loses it and everything. And then I guess Angel has to go all bitey, and they have like a moment, and he kind of saves her from going full on dark willow. And there's also this subplot where Connor apparently inspired a group of people from Kortoth. And, you know, most of them are supposed to be nefarious demon types and, and have no redeeming qualities or values. But I guess some of these kind of I, 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 the best way I could describe them is they're like the. The fucking kangaroo guys from Tank Girl or whatever, like but they're demons. Or I freaking something. love these guys. Yeah. Like like they're they're that that's that's kind of what they look like. And um, basically they witness i guess uh, a moment of affection between holtz and connor way back in the day and and based on the conversation they form an entire religion based around it because i guess you know they it's like kind of like huey lewis or something in the news you know where it's like you know the power of love or whatever you know it's like that's that's what enabled Connor and Holtz to be these vicious demon slayers the whole time in this hellish dimension. And so based on that, they sort of go against type for the people of that dimension. Unfortunately, because they're going so far against type, they're virtually wiped out by the time Connor and Angel and, and Willow uh, port through uh, and Faith port through to, to, um, basically restart magic and when connor finds this out there is that aspect that he it's funny he's not really directly responsible but he literally does feel responsible like he's this viewed as this god type figure and you know he he feels like he's he's led all these you know creatures on a path and, and he sort of feels responsible for that so he's not willing to let them all you know, go into slaughter. And, and so some of them are able to be ported out immediately. And then it, it's weird, like, I guess, Kortoth itself, like, I, I guess it was just a rumor or whatever, but Kortoth itself is actually a being on Kortoth. And it's like this ginormous, it, it kind of is like, it's like if Cthulhu met Validus from the Legion of Superheroes, because it's like this big, huge, exposed brain and he's got these weird elephant hooves and he's this like gigantic monstrosity like the size of like chemo from 
the metal man or whatever. And so, you know, that, that's one of those epic moments where I guess dark willow goes up against them and, you know, all this kind of craziness ensues and stuff. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's fairly epic. I mean, it's, it's a fairly cool scene and everything. So, I mean, I, I enjoyed it for that part of it. I was like, like the other arcs, it, it would seem like the other arcs, I would say like you could, probably do on the show like in live action with all the actors but this was like the arc where I was like okay well here's where the budget like goes out of control like, where they probably couldn't do this on a TV show yeah either that or it looked shitty like the CGI in the Spawn movie or something you know yeah yeah but yeah I mean it, it did look pretty cool I mean especially some of those those I guess you call them like the widescreen shots where they have like the two panels and it's like Willow is levitating in the air and she's like blasting all this magic all the way across to like the other side of the the page and, and, and is fighting against the, the Quartoth or whatever. So, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I liked seeing Connor again. You know, I, I like that, that, I mean, I, they weren't exactly on horrible terms when it started, but I guess the, the, the backstory to it was, you know, even though Connor and him seemed to be on good terms at the end of the Angel TV series, and, and I, I think even in the IDW stuff, they were on pretty good terms, if I'm remembering correctly. But I guess I guess in this, it's like they, they try to set up the idea that, you know, Connor's been calling, but Angel doesn't return his calls because he doesn't want to expose him to his, you know, horrible life, quote unquote, and, and, and kind of let him, you know, have his own little childhood uninterrupted and not dealing with any kind of, you know, demons and, and vampires and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, they, they sort of explain that to one another and, and, and they're sort of back on good terms by the end of the story, I think. So, I mean, all in all, like that was, you know, it was, it was a nice arc, um, you know, and I, I thought everything was kind of neatly wrapped up between Connor and Angel by the end of it. It's kind of like, you need me, call me, you need me, call me, you know, and then that, that's kind of the, the way I took I, I, love, I, I, I really love those guys that all worship Connor. They, like, have a ton of, like, great lines where, like, they open up the portal and, like, one of them's like, uh, you know, forgive our people, like Lord Connor. Like they are slow and stupid. Like please, please exterminate any who bar your way or whatever. Like, <laughs> I like. No, it's it's cool, dudes. Like, what, what's that thing? The one guy, like, please. He says, "Please take the the most pleasing of our stock, and you you can mate with us." Or I forget what how he phrased uh, it. It's like, please choose like the fairest among yeah, us, or yeah. whatever, as your mate. <laughs> I mean, Connor's just kind of like, you know, that's okay, I've got a girlfriend. Yeah, I think he's like, I, I am spoken for, but that, that's very nice, but I'm spoken for. But yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the, the, that that whole interaction, and, and he doesn't quite know how to handle it. I like how at the end he's just kind of like, he's trying to give him some kind of epic, you know, speech there at the end and live up to their expectations. And by the end of it, he's just kind of like, yeah, and uh, may the force be with you and stuff. And he's like, Jesus Christ, I'm a terrible I'm a terrible beast. Like, I'm no good. And Willow's like, it's okay. It's okay. It's all good, yeah. Yeah, I, I liked it. I mean, obviously Connor's a easy target for people who don't, like, like the show, or even even people who do like the show, because he's pretty, he's pretty uh, intolerable in, like, season four or whatever. And then you've got the ickiness with Cordelia, but I, I think they, they, in season five, they kind of redeem the character. That continues like here, 
cool with everything. And he doesn't like hate Angel anymore. And you're kind of like, you know, when you have a character who doesn't like your main character, sometimes it's like it's driving you against them. But like here, you know, it's like we're all good in the hood again. So, you know, I think he's kind of grown up and become a sort of, you know, probably like in, in your category of like characters you like, like sort of like Gohan or, or sort of character. Yeah, it seems like he went through a rough patch, but, you know, even Willow's sitting there telling him, like, you're totally awesome, dude. Like, you were the best. Like, thanks, Connor. You know, like, so there's, you know, certainly, like, I guess if if you're a fan of Buffy, you know, like, it's like, well, I guess Willow gives you the seal of approval, then then you must be cool, right? Like, I mean, from that perspective. Yeah. It's cool to see, like, Connor interact with, like, Willow and stuff. Because you don't usually see, like, characters from Angel's, like, you know, cast interact with the Buffy cast all that often. He must be Angel's handsome yet androgynous son. It's Connor. And the sneer's genetic. Who knew? And, and, and I thought another interesting aspect of that arc was the idea that, like, it sort of slips their mind that, you you know, you were speaking of how, you know, Connor was kind of a dipshit, or at least, you know, there's all that, like, X-Men-y nonsense that happens in Angel Season 3 and Season 4, and, you know, to, to sort of make up for that, you know, give him a normal life, you know, part of the thing was there was a mystical magic whammy that gave him a nice, normal family and, and a, you know, a regular childhood, and some of those were, you know, semi-implanted memories to ease the facilitation of that that new lifestyle and there's that one scene I kind of liked where he's kind of like you know there's no magic anymore right so like I, f- I forgot about all those memories a long time ago it's like I sort of remember them but I, I always knew they were kind of not real and Angel's just like Durr! like whoops he slaps his forehead like I should have thought of that like I didn't even think of that like I thought you were still totally on no it no it kinda did kind of it, what did kind of confuse me about that scene, though, is, like, Connor says, like, his fake parents, like, don't remember it either. So I'm kind of like, so how are you attending school now? Like, if they don't remember you, like, uh, uh, who's paying for this? Like, I, I just okay. assumed, since Angel had gun watching him, I mean, I don't know, maybe I... That's true, he probably I, I just figured like some cash, yeah. You know, like, that, that, I just assumed that there was something like that going down. Because it seems like if Angel cares enough to to still have tabs on his kid. Like, I'm sure if, you know, I mean, I know Angel was the one going, Durr, it didn't occur to me, but I, I would imagine even in that prior setup that he would still be, he, the person that Angel is would probably feel obligated to somehow contribute to the financial stability of Connor being involved in that family. So, you know what I mean? Like some some yeah. way of getting that taken care of without them knowing. So then I guess we come to the the additional fill-in story, which I was talking about before, where David Lapham did some of the art, but it is titled The Hero of His Own Story. And that goes into the, I guess, the motivations and backstory of Whistler, which I know, I know you talked a lot about on one of those sidecasts and everything, but I mean, it, it, it is interesting to, to be able, I mean, that's something else too, in terms of you're talking about budget. I mean, I suppose you can clearly hire the actor to come back and do this, but it, it does seem like one of those things where you, 
you know, who who knows what that guy looks like from from that episode of Buffy now. Do you know what I mean? So it's like that's something yeah. that's in the back of my head where it's like they can perfectly distill that character, the essence of that character as he was in that episode per se. Even though I, I don't think I ever I mean, I got the idea that he was special, but I I don't know that I ever I mean, you know, the idea that like they kind of reveal how he's the the offspring of a demon and a one of the powers that be. Like I don't know that I ever got that vibe from the actual Buffy episode. You know, I just thought he was like I don't know. Just like I thought he was just like a cool dude with a hat or whatever. Like I don't know what I thought. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I I didn't know like like that that is it's that weird moment where you're like, Oh, this guy can kick the shit out of Angel if he really wants to. Do you know what I mean? Like like that that whole, you know, kind of unassuming badassery, you know, where you're like, Oh, you know, I I, I guess it's kinda like the way you know, Android 17 and 18 are like frail, you know, like a bishy boy and a, a, a tiny little girl, basically, you know, but it's like, oh, but they can, you know, punch you into orbit if they really want to, you know, type thing. And and I think he has that, obviously, aspect where he's like pulling out his stomach or whatever and, you know, getting all mad and stuff. Yeah, he freaking, he straight up punches a hole in Angel, yeah. But I guess his whole thing, like we were talking about before in the sidecast, is about having balance. And so I, I guess he thought that, you know, the whole Twilight plan was part of that as well, supposedly. Like, th- this is the first time they've mentioned his tie to that, I would imagine, right? Like, I, I don't think anybody... Yeah, I don't really think it came up in season eight. Of at all, movie. right? So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just I was just again like I, I feel like that's more like fixing of it. Like, right. You know, it was it, it. It's not just about Buffy. It's like you know this is like one of Angel's like you know cast had a hand or or well like some one of Angel's like benefactors or something. Yeah, yeah. Some somebody did. from his past, you know, who was yeah who who shaped him and molded him into the the heroic figure that we've come to know today. You know, and I, I guess it does have that aspect of. And Whistler's back, and now he's evil. <laughs> there's there's that aspect to it too, where it's like somebody you're familiar with. Now, and and he of course is working with Pearl and Nash, and and we're, we're Pearl. I'm imagining Pearl and Nash were in Buffy season eight, right? Because they were working with Twilight. I don't actually know. They might have just been invented for this series. Okay. But I, yeah, I'm not totally... I'll have to look that up, but I'm not totally sure. Because it sounded like like they, they made reference to it. I know we, we briefly went into it, but in the, the fill-in issue where Spike comes back, they do mention, like, Spike's like, oh, you know, I, I fought those buggers, you know, or whatever. It's like... And I imagine that was a reference to some Buffy season nine comics. So I imagine maybe they they crossed over, you know, into that on occasion looking for magical stuff. Unless unless that was just, you know, a random reference to something that never happened in another comic. That's that's entirely possible. Yeah. 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 I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up, but. So, I mean, I, I don't know if we need to run through, but basically I, I know you, you've kind of already, you know, spilled the beans on, you know, the, the main purpose of the cast is to resurrect 
Giles. And I mean, the, the death and consequences arc and then the what you want, not what you need arc kind of goes into that. I mean, the death and consequences arc deals with the, the demon Igon and that's back when I guess, you know, the Ripper and Ethan Rain were running around being like John Constantine's and, and, you know, doing all kinds of nefarious punk rock magic in London and stuff. And that's how they ended up sort of selling their souls in a way to that demon. So it's like, I guess his body, you know, Giles's body, I guess one of the caveats is in a world without magic, you know, how are you supposed to magically resurrect someone? And I guess, you know, in, in the case of this story, it's that, you know, the character himself, you know, he was a watcher. He, he practiced the arcane arts. He was, had ties to this demon and the demon had the rights to his soul. So like there are all these extenuating factors. And I, I think it's explained a lot better than say, you know, the death and return of Superman, but, but both of those have the same premise. It's like any other time, any other place, you know, Superman could have not been brought back to life, you know, and it's like, basically it, it's the same thing with Giles. It's like any other situation, any other time, any other place, you know, without the demon having his soul, without angel going around and collecting all these, you know, former mystical artifacts that, you know, restore his body and restore his, his, uh, you know, I guess consciousness and all that kind of stuff. It's like you wouldn't necessarily be able to do this with just anybody. It's that there are a lot of extenuating circumstances. And I guess, well, you know, one character we didn't talk about is the, I am trying to remember what his name is, like Alistair or something. I don't know. The, the old man that, oh, that yeah, was, was friends. One of Giles, buddy. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the whole series, he's basically warning against that. And, and, you know, I guess ultimately he's one of the guys who finishes the, the spell casting once Angel kicks off the spell so as not to hurt anybody else. And then, you know, I guess in, in thinking about Giles, that's part of the, the way the spell works, the resurrection spell. So, you know, Angel and Faith, of course, are, you know, thinking about him. You know, there's, there's lots of good moments that like Faith thinks of throughout the course of the series, you know, the way Giles mentored her. And, you know, the, the fact that she does, you know, feel like he was a, one of the solid father figures in her life, I guess, you know, and, and so, you know, thinking about all that, they're wishing him back, but then I guess his aunts are still seeing him as this, you know, 10 year old boy playing with airplanes and everything. So I guess due to that aspect, and, and I guess later they sort of reveal it it kind of is based on Rupert Giles's thoughts too, because his thought is, you know, well, if only I was a more mature young man when I went to Watcher School, you know, I, I could have done things better. So there there maybe is some kind of, even though he doesn't really want to be a little kid when he finally is resurrected, there is that I guess subconscious aspect that he probably had an influence on it as well as his aunts. But basically, yeah, he does get. I mean, ultimately, you know, they fight off, uh, I think it's like, you know, Nash and Pearl and, and Whistler is busy stealing all this magic stuff from, from the friend's stash that he had had hidden throughout the course of this storyline. And then, you know, Giles is brought back as like a little kid and there's all these weird, awkward moments where, you know, he's staring at Faith's boobs and hugging her and getting a chubby and 
all that kind of stuff, which is kind of funny. And she seems like super forgiving about, but then she also seems like horribly aghast, depending on how Rebecca Isaacs, you know, portrays the the uh, situation. So, I mean, as far as the, the final arc, which we talked about, which was called like what you want, not what you need, that sort of has to deal with Whistler's master plan to imbue magic back into the entire planet. But I guess the drawback to that is there's going to be a lot of death and mayhem and all kinds of stuff that go on when that happens. So basically a third of the world would die just to bring back magic. And Angel seems to insinuate that, you know, if magic was still around, Whistler wouldn't be, you know, he, he might be in his right mind, as opposed to thinking that this kind of, you know, racial ghoul, you know, world level extinction of people is cool. You know, it's like so. I mean, you know, there, it's weird. There's there's lots of uncomfortable comparisons to, you know, it's like Hiroshima versus not having Hiroshima killing more people with an invasion of Japan and you know all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, you know, I guess ultimately there's a there's a big showdown between Nash and Pearl, and then you know Faith and uh, why can't I think of her name? I always got to look back at it. I'm all Faith and uh, Nadira, you know, are, are facing off against uh, Nash and Pearl. Uh, Nadira gets really fucked up, like she gets like burned and everything. Like I, I thought she was dead, but I guess luckily she is not. And there is uh, this showdown between Angel and Whistler. And and all I wanted to say about that is, like, Whistler's demon slash powers that be form, like, that kind of reminds me of the, the whole Alan Moore Mitzelplick looking thing and whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where it's like, you know, the 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 whistler that's just a dude like that's like a hipster with his hat you know like kind of you know jump and jive looking guy or whatever and <laughs> and and it's like oh but then it's like that that's kind of like the regular mitzvah you're used to but then like at the end when mitzvah turns into this weird kind of negative energy being with like red outlines and is just like i'm gonna be evil for a millennium Rawr! And it's you, like, you know, you, the, the exact dialogue could like fit into the scene where Whistler could have been like, did you really think like a, I would look like a funny little guy with a right, funny hat? Right, right. Like that. That's kind of what I took the, the his form to be, because he's, you know, he's got this like these horns, but he also has this kind of almost Tron type lights with the whole powers that be look and everything. And I, I, I was entertained by that. I mean, I mean, I think I, I think I. It, it helped me take the the final fight a lot more seriously than if it was as as you're saying as we're quoting Alan Moore and he's like nobody comes up with anything original they all stole it from me you know whatever but you know as as you're saying you know I don't know how serious I would have taken that final battle if it was just a funny little guy and a funny little hat and 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 they they sold that final battle to me you know basically. Definitely. Like, I thought that was a good, like, I, I like, they kind of confined it to a single rooftop, which I, I felt, despite all the flying people and eye beams and all that, I was like, oh, they probably could have pulled that off on the show somehow. But So as far as, like, the wrap-up goes, I mean, once once that's all settled, it's like the, the way they finally sort of get through to Whistler 
it seems like is, you know, he's trying to show him the cost of what he's doing. And then he actually takes some of that magic for himself. And that sort of takes him out of his, his Alan Moore Mitzelflick mode. And, and, and he's finally, I guess, once again, balanced. And then, you know, much like, I don't know, it kind of, it was kind of like this whole, you know, Hal Jordan in final night moment where Whistler all of a sudden decides like, I'm going to sacrifice myself because I realized what I was doing was not, not quite, you know, sane. And so he, he basically sacrifices himself in lieu of having this magic explosion go all over the place and, and, and wiping out a bunch of people while bringing back magic. It did seem like, like Giles and some of the other mages thought they could somehow control the dispersal of it so that it wouldn't hurt people, but they, I guess they just couldn't do it, you know, in that kind of situation or whatever. Um, but, it, but it seems like with the wrap up, it's like, okay, well, Angel and Faith are going to go their separate ways. Um, specifically like Faith is like, I'm going to leave. And, and, you know, she sort of, I, it, it's weird. Like she, she sort of devotes herself to Angel in this entire series, and and it's out of a sense of obligation. You know, she owes him for I guess season one, episode eighteen or nineteen or whatever it is. You know, where she, you know, basically comes to L.A. and he kind of takes care of her and all that kind of stuff. And so, based on that sense of obligation, you know, she sticks by him this whole time. But her her outlook now is like, well, I stuck by you and I devoted myself to you like I do to a lot of, you know, I guess men in my life. But in the meantime, like all my sister slayers like hate my guts or they've died or they got burned to death like Nadira or whatever. And, and, and I lost certain things that were exclusively mine, you know, like they, they sort of <laughs> fell under the cracks while I was helping you resurrect Giles, you know, type thing. So she, she goes off to do her own thing. It looks like Giles is going to go with her, but then there was that kind of, I mean, I guess I understand it because Giles is kind of like, well, the best I've ever been is when I was with Buffy. And then the minute he says that you could see, she gets that kind of like, angry look on her face and I could understand that but it seemed like a weird way for them to go out on I don't know did do you have a take on that that was different from mine or well at that point I knew that Christos Gage was taking over for Buffy like season 10 so I figured oh he's setting stuff up for that pretty mm-hmm. much so but yeah it did seem like a like I don't know not good way to end the story basically like if, if you wanted to be like all self-contained and whatnot yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I just, I, I, I understood her reaction. It was a human reaction, you know, but then at the same time, it was kind of like, oh, that's weird. Like, I thought they were going to go off and, you know, little Giles was going to have like faith boners and stuff and just kind of, they were going to have adventures <laughs> and stuff, but it seemed like, no, that's not exactly what's going to happen. He's going to obviously, you know, tell Buffy, hey, Buffy, I'm alive, but I'm like a little kid, like little Goku or whatever after the Dragon Balls or whatever. And, it seemed like it was not going to quite go the way I had envisioned it per se. Um, and, and, and as far as I know, I don't, I don't know if this is true or not, but at the end of, uh, at the end of this, you know, Angel seems to indicate he's going to stay in London and sort of fight the good fight. I don't know if that stays that way or if he moves somewhere else or whatever in, in subsequent series. But I mean, you know, overall, I, 
really did enjoy this. I mean, I thought the writing was excellent. I thought even even with the this, you know, kind of minor criticisms I had of the fill-in artists, I thought all the art was really exceptional. And I'm I'm glad you made me kind of read the entire enchilada. I know I only read snippets of this or or kind of perused issues, you know, based on some of the side casts we did, but I'm I'm super happy that that I got to read the whole thing and and I'm you know, I'm kind of like I'm glad I I read it. Like, obviously, like I said, I like Angel's corner of the universe better than Buffy's, and Faith is probably my second favorite character in the whole, like, Megilla, like, after, like, Wesley, like, who was my first favorite character, and I guess, because both Wesley and Faith, like, you could really chart their progress throughout the entire, like, two TV shows or whatever, and I think they grew the most. So I, I don't know. I think that that spoke well for their characters and why they're my favorites. Wes, Faith. See, Fritz know how to say goodbye. Angel, I wanted a hug. No, I didn't. That's that's pretty much why I I, I immediately was sold on this book because you know I was like, oh, it's Angel, like whose show I like, and it's Faith, who's one of my favorite characters. And it's Christos Gage, who like we obviously are all big fans of. And then it, it didn't help hurt that like I really liked Rebecca Isaac's art. So it was like it was the complete package basically. Like I enjoyed everything I read in this series. Yeah, I mean I'd say if you're if you're a fan of, of the Angel Buffy verse, if you're a fan of Christos Gage, and if you like some really, really nice comic art, I'd say this is all all strong factors for, you know, recommending checking out Angel and Faith Season 9. So The, the last thing I want to say is a couple line, like references Faith made that I thought were pretty hilarious, where when I, I forgot, like, she, she kind of, like, laments having so much responsibility now, and she's like, I'm not friggin' Spider-Man. Like, like that, that made me crack up. And then the other one was... Uh, like I, I forgot, she talks to like the girls, like the Slayer chicks, and they they like say they make some reference like oh, oh you're old or whatever, and like and the like that gets her all like like cranky, and then later like with like Angel, she's like apparently like I'm friggin' Obi Wan Kenobi now or something, like and I thought that was like I think like I think we all can relate to that reference basically, yeah, especially when you guys can relate to it like in regards to me or whatever. Like, you guys are old, <laughs> you and Tony and whoever else. But, but yeah, th- th- those those both made me laugh a lot. Yeah, speaking of, of Mr. Tony Jackson, I think what we're going to do now is we're going to take a brief break. We're actually going to play a commercial for the podcast that inspired this month of Fanhole's Fright Fest, the Supermates podcast. We're going to play their House of Frankenstein commercial. And then when we come back, Mr. Tony Jackson is going to join us in a discussion on another vampire live action TV show, Forever Night. So take a listen and then come back and join us for Forever Night. It lives. Master, it's night again. Beautiful, dark, silent night. With the fog creeping in. 
Time for you to awaken, Master. Time for you to go out. Something terrible has happened. You dared open the barred door. Believe me when I say that what you're doing places yourself and the rest of your party in the gravest danger. Inside lie monsters greater than your worst nightmares. They were all evil in life and remained evil after death. And now the terror is loose upon the podcasting world again. It's not in my power to help you. You're the only one that understands. Nobody else in the world will believe me. This September and October, dare to visit Supermate's estates and walk the halls in this hall of horror, this abode of angst. Return to the House of Frankenstein. Legends of classic horror spread their evil, but fear not, for your favorite heroes are here to challenge them. Do me a favor, Shaggy. Stay down. Yes, not. Beware these masters of the macabre. Bella Lugosi. Your fate is to be what you are. Mine is to be what I am. Lon Chaney Jr. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Christopher Lee. I am come unto thee, O Osiris, who art cleansed of all impurities. Peter Cushing. Consequences? That sounds like a threat. And Ingrid Pitt. You must die. Everybody must die. Is supermatescomic.blogspot.com production. Coming soon to an iTunes near you. Return to the house of Franklin Stein. They are just dying to greet you. Hey guys, so we're back and we're now discussing the second half of our Fan Holes Fright Fest. So we did our comic book portion of Fanhole's Fright Fest, and now we're going to be talking about a television pilot. This television pilot was suggested by our very own Tony Jackson, so it's a good thing he's here tonight. So give a shout-out, Tony. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Tony, and uh, I'm a vampire, eh? Yeah, yeah, go, yeah, you hoser? (laughs) Close the blinds, Nat. No, you have got to stop drinking this stuff. Give me that! Is this the same guy who came begging to me to help him change so he could see a sunrise? Screw the sunrise. Give me the bottle. No! So yeah, as evidenced by by Tony's A, ya hoser, this was a Canadian television series, Forever Night, that actually started in 1992, and it ran for three seasons until 1996. And this pilot stars Geraint Vin Davis as Nick Knight, who is this 800-year-old vampire, and he works as a police detective in modern-day Toronto. So basically, like, like I think the reason why we paired up Angel and Faith for the comic half and then Forever Night was... The, we, me and, me and 
Mike were talking about this earlier, and maybe you'd like to go into this a little bit, Tony, but we had both heard rumblings. Like, I, I've never seen Forever Night until you suggested it, and I don't think Mike had either, but we both had heard the rumblings of, oh, Angel's just a ripoff of Forever Night or just a knockoff of Forever Night. And, you know, as you're watching it, you're kind of like, yeah, I guess I, I could kind of see that because he's like, he's he's a vampire but he's kind of like a, a private eye ish sort of guy but not really because he's a detective but he's got like this old classic car and he's he's running around the town and all this kind of stuff so i don't know what what's your kind of take on that tony yeah um actually <clears throat> a girl who i was uh into at the time in the heady days of my uh high school experience yes i'm old um <laughs> Uh, she was really into it. Uh, I, I guess this was the uh, prototype, you know, Twilight phase for uh, high school uh, girls. And she was like, you should really watch it. It's really, really good. And I'm like, uh, uh, no, okay. And I, I actually watched a couple episodes. Um, we're, we're talking about the pilot episode tonight, but um, I watched some of the later season. I think, think season two-ish, I think. <clears throat> and it is actually... Like we'll go into detail about the pilot, but it's actually not bad. It's actually got a a, a style to it. It's 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 Canadian. It's it's the, the main stuff takes place in Ontario, but um, it's it's really not bad. It's it was a syndicated show uh, at first, and, and it was like, you know, it just it kind of it kind of has like a nice vibe to it, and I think the the best thing about it is is that the lead. Nick Knight, um, you said his name better. I can't say his real name at all. Um, he's actually a good lead. He actually has definitely has charisma. He 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 brings something to the table. I, I think uh, you know me and me and Derek have made subtle jabs at the Highlander series before the uh, TV series because the main lead was okay, <laughs> but he wasn't really a Highlander, you know. You know, I was going to ask you, and this is something that me and Mike talked about before the show as well. But did did you know that this Forever Night pilot that we're going to discuss, Dark Knight, the one that was made in 1992, and obviously it had a whole string of episodes in syndication. Did you know that originally the same pilot was originated in 1989, and it was a it was a CBS television movie titled Nick Knight, and the character, you know, Nicholas Knight was actually played by Rick Springfield. Um, I did not know that when I first saw it. <clears throat> I did not know that when I suggested it. But so, um, <laughs> yeah, I found out later. And I was like, I was like looking through YouTube for episodes that one time, and then the uh, when I decided to watch the uh, pilot again, it was like Nick Knight, Rick Springfield, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really weird because I I tried to do my due diligence and I. I told Mike I watched the majority of the Rick Springfield one, too. And and it's pretty clear they're both operating from the same script. I mean, the, 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 the script and the dialogue, like even some of the jokes, like you'd think like the Geraldo reference wouldn't be valid four years later. But apparently they still use the Geraldo joke. Do you know what I mean? Like they still have like some some of the lines are, are exactly the same. Um, and, and so like, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But then like some of the casting is completely like some of the casting, like, you know, for, for certain characters seems like they went exactly the same. Like the, the guy they got to play 
detective skanky or whatever his is his kind of like <laughs> annoying partner or whatever like like detective skanky in the cbs television pilot and the one in the canadian 1992 pilot dark knight like they both seem kind of like oh they're dark haired like white guys who kind of have a swarmy attitude and they're kind of slightly balding you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, they're, they're like they cast the exact same type. Like it, it must have said something like that in the script or whatever. And they they just stuck to it or, or you know, that that's the vibe yeah, yeah, I'm like getting. That. But yet yet the the character that is the coroner that knows he's a vampire in the in the 1989 series, it's like this Jewish male doctor who kind of knows he's a vampire and is helping him out with the hamburger meat and all that stuff. But in the 1992 one, it's actually a female. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, oh, they, they yeah, occasionally, better, better hunter, they, right? yeah, they, they switch stuff up. And, and so it's like sort of different or whatever. But I guess just to, um, I guess just to get everybody up to speed, I did write down sort of the, the brief, synopsis of of what this original pilot is so i'll read that real quick and then i guess we can start talking about the details of the pilot and everything but here we go uh nick knight an 800 year old vampire working as a police detective in modern day toronto racked with guilt for centuries from killing others he seeks redemption by working as a homicide detective on the night shift while struggling to find a way to become human again. While searching for a serial killer, Nick Knight discovers a chance to end his vampire curse. While Skanky tracks down leads in the human world, Nick learns that the murderer may be the work of the man who made him a vampire many years ago. So that's basically the the gist of uh, like this. This was kind of like a TV movie in and of itself, because I, I, I think I watched like what they had listed as the first episode. And then I was like, hey, I got to watch the second episode, because I was like, I think when I got to the end of the first episode, I was like, wow, they're going to have to really do some shucking and jiving to wrap this up in five minutes. And I went, oh, it's sort of like to be continued. So there's like a whole a whole other yeah. hour for them to play with and everything. But I mean, I guess. The, you know the the what what's interesting about the 1992 pilot is I I feel like it was made for the the labyrinth type viewer where it's like the origin is like straight up front where they have that flashback in the opening like in the in the CBS yeah. one there is no flashback like they don't they don't spell out exactly what his origins are you sort of learn about it as the movie progresses but in this it's like, you know, here's where the character gets sired in Paris 800 years ago. You know what I mean? So if, like, you're the type of guy who, you know, like I said, it's a labyrinth origin. You know, if you like the, the origin up front, you know, then, then like, this is totally, like, yeah, a show for you. Yeah, because even, even, even Angel didn't do that. <clears throat> like, the uh, character of Angelus, <clears throat> depending on the episode... And they would they would routinely flash back to uh, the Victorian times when he was Angelus and show like you know the horrible things he did. It wasn't all just in the first episode. You would see like him being horrible and this miscreant and you know a whoremonger and a, 
a brutal, you know, sadistic kind of guy, and that's why he feels like such an asshole. This is just like, you know, the first episode is like, here's why he feels this way. This is why he feels like bad for being a vampire, and this is what happened back to him in the Crusades. And, you know, it's just like, damn, okay. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because, like, I, I mean, I don't know, if, uh, like, because I haven't seen the other episodes, but my, my take on the pilot was it, it almost seemed like, okay, we've sired you. Now you're a vampire. Now you got to drink this lady's blood. And then, like, the whole arc seemed to be like, wow, drinking that lady's blood made me feel evil. I better not do this now. What? You rejected me. We're going to be enemies. Like, and it just seemed like it happened so fast. Like, they didn't even leave any. It's like, wait, he feels guilty for killing people? It's like, well, it seems like he already felt guilty about it, like, the minute he became a vampire, almost. Like, it's not like like he had any time to, like, revel in his, his vampire life before that 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 turnaround happened so i i thought that was kind of interesting but um i i don't know mike what what's your take well, I, on I, the uh oh the, yeah yeah mike is mike is here by the way guys <laughs> i'm just curious like because we're comparing it to to angel like what was your take like like can you imagine if angel like you know the first time you saw angel he's like hey buffy what's up and then they cut to like the flashback of him being sired or whatever like right away like what's your what's your kind of take on on the uh opening of of dark knight here I thought it was interesting. I mean, I kind of, yeah, I kind of thought, like, it, it, while it did, like, give you the origin or whatever, it, I thought it kind of, it, it weaved it into the first, like, episode pretty, like, I'm not going to say, like, skillfully, but, like, competently. <laughs> like, like, like I, 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 I got that, like, that stuff was, like, going down, or that, that stuff had went down, and I got everything that was happening, so it's not like it didn't come out of anywhere or whatever. But I think if, like, the Labyrinth type would complain about anything, it'd be like, you know, why isn't the origin, like, all linear and stuff? Why do we keep getting, like, flashbacks everywhere or whatever? Well, I, I thought what was interesting, though, was, like, the, it's almost like the first scene you see is a flashback, you know, because it's, like, right up front, they're like, hey, what's up? Being sired, gonna gonna drain some blood out of a young lady. Like, I, I mean, they kind of, like, show you all that up front so that, for me, it's like in, in the CBS pilot, you didn't have that scene. So when you finally come across the, the French lady who's his, you know, I guess, you know, former flame or whatever, it's like, it's like you don't have that frame of reference. You know, it's just like, oh, who is this? Like some vampire lady he knows do you know what i mean so it's it's there's a little bit more of a mystery as you're watching it along you know and and kind of you know that tantalizes you or teases you along and everything but then i mean when we go to i guess the modern setting which is in uh you know i guess it's it would be 1992 toronto you know and so there's basically a murder at a museum and there's this ancient like green cup that has been used in blood drinking rituals, like as like far back as like the Aztecs or something like that. So, and then in the, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so, and so apparently this is, this is the fourth of uh, such publicized quote unquote vampire murders. Cause there's like all these, all these reporters that are like, harassing Nick Knight as he walks into the precinct and everything. And it kind of made me laugh because it's like, eventually he uses, I guess the, the Jedi vampire mind trick on them. Cause they're like, what do you know about these? Are these vampires? Or is this, this, is this that please answer the question. We're reporters. We're going to keep sticking this microphone in your face until you answer us, answer the question. 
And then at one point, like, Nick Knight just turns to them and is like, go home. And they're like, I feel like going home now. You know, and I just, that kind of made me laugh. I, I was going to bring that up. Is like, whereas Angel, Angel is a really good fighter. He's he's really tough. And, you know, he, he's been around for a while. So he, he's got some skills, you know. I mean, it, it's a pretty good moveset of what he has. You know, if you were, if you were making a Dungeons & Dragons character, he would be like a, a mid-level character by the time we're introduced to him. He's like pretty strong, but he's he's believable. And it's just funny because Nick just seems to pull shit out of his ass. Like, like one of the first scenes, you know, after the the, the origin scene, they're, they're talking about the cup, you know, and it was like, you know, oh, and by the way, I can read Mayan language. It's cool, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I think he, he's like that's that's the code key to my apartment building or whatever. In, I, in th- my... I think the I think the goofiest thing was the flying. Like, it's, like, clearly the budget did not allow for, like, actual shots of them, like, Superman flying. So it's just, like, they kind of get pulled up off screen by, like, wires, and then it's just a POV shot of them flying. You know you know what's interesting about that is, and I'm probably going to harp on the differences between the 89 pilot and this pilot, but I feel like that must have been written in the script, that POV shot of him hovering over the city. Because it's used in both, and and not to belabor the point, but, you know, no offense to our Canadian listener contingent, but, like, the it seems like the Los Angeles actors in the Rick Springfield one, for the most part, like, I, I don't know if it's just the fact that it, it is in 1989 and there was all this cheesy 80s music being played in the background, but, like... They they seem to hey, deliver Rick Springfield, you know. <laughs> well, they they just they they seem to deliver the lines so much better than than in the like 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 I I I I'm thinking of like the, the, this one particular thing is like when when he finally goes in to see his precinct captain and he finds out he's being partnered with Skanky and Skanky is basically like oh he's Skanky you know he's he's like you know the. Skanky. He, he's basically like the the. Slice. He likes Sawake. Like, I mean, how many times is that gonna come up during the series? I bet. It's like, hey, look, I've got you know, I I I'm gonna, <laughs> like I'm gonna eat garlic and then I'm gonna breathe it in your face and it's doubly funny because you're a vampire, you know, and like there's all this sort of like non subtle stuff, but of course you you know he's not Nick Knight's favorite person, so when. When the captain basically says you're going to be partnered with this guy, like the uh, basically uh, uh, it's like uh, Geraint Vin Davies as an actor. It's like he sees the guy as he opens the door and it's almost like he's playing it to us, the audience. But really, he's supposed to be talking to the precinct and he turns the camera and he's just like, can someone please shoot me? Anybody? Anybody? Can you please shoot me? And, like, it's fun- funny. I got it. Like, I laugh. But what's funny is, in the in the Rick Springfield one, it's almost like a throwaway line. It's like, they're, they're already in the room together, and I think Skanky comes into the room instead of the door opening. And it's like, guess who's going to be your new partner? Door opens to reveal Skanky. And he's like, oh, man, just shoot me. Jesus. Anyway... Back to the the murder in the museum. Do you know what I mean? But but the the Geraint Vin Davies one, it just belabored the whole 
shoot me line or whatever and stuff like that. And I guess uh, my yeah, it'd been like uh, all I was gonna say is it would have been like in a movie. Okay. I was gonna say all I was gonna say is getting back to the the point of the point of view flying shots. Like for some reason in the CBS version, I don't know if it was the the way the music and the sound effects were done, but it seemed slightly higher budget than. Like, I, I get what Mike's saying, because when I first saw it, I went, oh, man, I guess they don't have the budget to show this guy flying. Like, that's the impression you get in, in the 90s, you know, the 1992 TV pilot. But in the Rick Springfield thing, you, you kind of get like, oh, this is like actually like a decent helicopter shot with a decent camera. You know, whereas in the other one, you're like, oh, this is like, you know, somebody borrowed somebody's helicopter on the weekend and they had a shitty camera. Or whatever, and no, or, or even just just stock sense. footage. You know? Yeah, 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 stock footage of of Toronto or something like that. You know, like where it's like not not super, you know, in depth or whatever. And and so I I, I just wanted to sort of illustrate that 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 it, it one it was probably something that was written in the script to do those POV shots because it was in both versions. And then the other thing too is that yes, I agree with Mike in this particular pilot. It looks super, super cheesy. Like, I think the fact that they, it's like stock footage that they tried to do slow-mo on because they didn't have enough stock footage of it. You know what I mean? Whereas it seemed like the other one, they actually went out and shot it and, and it was on film and it looked good. And they had enough of it to last the whole goddamn scene. You know what I mean? Like, so. Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, for, my, for my lame joke that I was really horribly trying to put it on you on. Sorry, I apologize. It just was in my head. It was just like, if they're like, Lethal Weapon 6, Danny Glover's been doing this shit for a long time. But what's he going to do when his partner is Pauly Shore? Pauly Shore. <gasps> oh, he's terrible. Anyway, um. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh. <laughs> it's like Pauly Shore. But, uh, I, Pauly Shore is Detective Skanky. It's like, what the fuck did Polly Short say? What was his catchphrase? I can't even remember now. Where he's like, "We's at the Jews, we Jews, <laughs> the weasel, or whatever the fuck." Yeah, and then of course Danny Glover's gonna like shoot me. Somebody, he's like Danny Glover, probably just puts up the the Magnum gun to his head, like he's a <laughs> predator too, or whatever, and blows his brains out. But yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I will, I will defend this show a little bit. There are some things that are kind of forgivable. I will I will relate on that. I, I do see this with some nostalgic glasses. I'm also not going to pretend I don't. But in the 90s, like it, for the whole 90s, there was a lot of syndication. Syndication was yeah, king yeah. for some reason in the 90s. And you, you had stuff like TNG and DS9 that were actually pretty high-end syndication products. And then you had stuff like Hercules and Xena, which, while entertaining, and I enjoyed them, even then, like, some of the effects were kind of, really? You guys are doing that? So syndication was definitely hit or miss. It was like sometimes they would actually have the budget for it, especially if they got the ratings. But sometimes I can't really blame them because those shows were kind of running on, like, not even a budget you would have for, like, a prime time, like, Saved by the Bell, the college years, you know, budget. You know, it was, it was pretty low budget. And they, they did what they could do. The flying scenes were pretty horrible, though. I can't really defend those. I, I, I will relent to you and Mike on that. They did look pretty damn cheesy. <laughs> I, I was wondering, I don't know if you guys have checked out this show or not, too, but I, I feel like com besides comparing it to Angel, 
I think maybe, I mean, maybe very minorly, I would imagine that maybe the show iZombie owes a bit of gratitude to Forever Night, too, because I, I feel like, especially like in the scenes in the morgue, it's like, well, iZombie, the, the whole premise of at least the television show is that, you know, they, the, the, the zombie, you know, Liv is, is a, you know, she is part of the, the coroner's office. So in, in that sense, I feel like the whole uh, subplot with, uh, Dr. Natalie Lambert basically is, you know, she's the lady who knows that Nick is a vampire and like, it, it's like she's making him drink some kind of green concoction or whatever. And he's spitting it out in the beginning of the pilot. And later on, she's trying to have him eat like a hamburger or something that of course he's spitting up because he wants to drink blood instead and all that stuff. But I, I don't know. Have any of you guys seen iZombie? Like, does that make any sense or? I, I have not. Okay. I just figured I'd just throw it out there because it did remind me a little bit of of the the setup in I Zombie where you know it's like there there's you know somebody's in on the gag. It's like oh you know the 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 one yeah. guy works for the coroner's office and he knows that lives a zombie. It's like oh this this doctor works for the coroner's office and she knows that he's a vampire. You know and she's no, trying no, to treat no, him. It's, no, it's funny about that. <laughs> like I kind of thought like. I thought they were setting up that other, like the museum curator chick, is like a, a like a supporting character and stuff, and like yeah, that uh, was Doctor Hunter. I, I got mixed up. Okay. Yeah, wh- whoever she was, she was she was a lot hotter than the other chick, but whatever. I guess I don't know if she ever shows up again. But I was it's like, it's interesting. I think that would totally like again going back to the CBS pilot like that. The, the coroner lady is actually a coroner dude. So that would sort of, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know, in 2015, if that would eliminate your, your doubts, but, but at least, at least in, in back then, that's like, oh, well, you, you would never have any question about it. It's like clearly th- there was only one leading lady in the CBS pilot. Whereas in this, there, you know, technically there are two leading ladies, I suppose, and, and, and they, they both could potentially buy for Nick Knight's romantic affections. You know, maybe they wanted that in place. You know, I, I don't know. Like, Tony's seen the show more than we have, so I don't know if she eventually becomes, you know, Lambert. I don't know if the, the coroner lady becomes a romantic interest or not, but she there's the potential for that to happen just as much. So, um, so... Uh, Nick Knight, Nick Knight uh, tends to love the ladies a lot, so uh, <laughs> he, happy you will on that. He loves them and leaves them. Um, you, you know what else was funny was, um, well, I, I guess this is uh, basically the, the, the chief in this is uh, basically, uh, let me see. <clears throat> Captain Stone Tree. Yeah, Captain Stone Tree. Like, he, I think I wrote this down right. I believe he's played by, he's he's a Native American actor. And then they kind of dress him up again. I'm going to make this stupid gag I made on the first half of the show. But they, they kind of dress him up as like the angry Hepcat chief, you know, because he's got like the fucking jump and jive hat with the hat turned up and all this kind of stuff. And like I, I thought, you know, I, I don't know. It, it was kind of funny. Like he's, he's, he's like, uh, damn, damn it! Just like you know, uh, his name, uh, Gary Farmer. 
Gary Farmer. Okay, so like he's he's a Canadian actor, but he's he's Native American. So, but but what's weird is I don't think I don't think anybody would make that connection. I mean, I guess if you call them Captain Stone Tree, maybe you make that connection. But I mean, I I don't know that you you think of it yeah, outright. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he just kind of he, he seems like your typical angry. You know, like like th- this is the part of it that is not like Angel to me. It's very kind of 21 jump street like i i i don't want to call it a police procedural because it doesn't follow any procedure but it's like the the intimation of a police procedural in the 90s merged with like this kind of vampire <laughs> stuff yeah. and um and so skanky in this one is played by uh John Capellos and he's actually like you know what's funny is he's got a very recognizable face because he is a prolific character actor. And what I thought was interesting was he was on Angel later on. So, um, (laughs) so, so that I thought was kind of interesting was he did go on to be an angel. So that's, that's kind of fun. I I did, I did read that his character got like a sort of unceremonious send off in the third season where like in the first episode of the third season, it's like, Oh yeah, Skanky died in a plane crash or something. (laughs) Couldn't it, couldn't it happen to yeah, the guy? Die. And then like he, I guess he gets replaced. Like he gets like some hot blonde like partner or something. <laughs> that, that's that he can make sexy face. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, Nick Knight loves the ladies. So, um, and by the way, Derek, I I I'm going to correct you, but I'm also going to keep calling him this because it's much funnier. His name is actually Shanky, but. Skanky just sounds so much better. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to call him Skanky. You know, that's what I thought yeah. it was. It sounded like that's what they were saying. Yeah. Do you realize you got a pint of grade-A Skanky running through you? Basically, like, what what's funny is, this is the part that I thought was funny, was after he gets into that whole argument with his angry Hepcat chief or whatever, he, in the middle of that, like, they're ordering, like, lunch or something, even though he's works the night shift. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so he's ordering food, right? And they're passing out, like, sandwiches and things. And he orders cheeseburgers. And all I can think of is, this dude's a vampire, right? So I've never seen this show before. I don't know where it's going. I don't, I don't, basically, I don't realize he's buying these cheeseburgers for homeless people, okay? I don't know that. So I'm sitting there going, are they, like, really, like, are they, like, really blood rare cheeseburgers? Like, why is he buying? And it's like, if they're really blood rare, why does he want the cheese? Like, I I was kind of lost at that point. I was like, why is he ordering cheeseburgers? I don't understand. But um, it turns out they're for homeless people. And again, sorry, I'm going to harp on this because I've seen it now and I cannot unsee it. The fucking CBS pilot, they're, they're grubby old dirty ass homeless people and they look like fucking homeless people of course in the canadian it, it, version it's fucking every like the foot clan in, in in the homeless in in the, in the in the canadian version it's fucking esri dax from fucking deep space nine is the hottest homeless chick you've ever seen where you're like <laughs> dude why isn't she turning tricks to get off the street right now i would totally let her come stay at my pad if she yeah, and she would not be homeless. So I'm like, I don't even get this. Like, so th- basically, the the reason why I say it is her name on the, you know, it's like Esri Dax's name on the the Forever Night pilot is Jeannie, 
And even in the CBS pilot, it's like the old ladies, like Jeannie, like, I'm not going to let him go on the sauce or whatever. And you're like, I'm sorry, those homeless people in the CBS thing were so much better cast than than in this. But of course, you know, uh, uh, Nicole DeBoer is is cute, so I'm not going to hold it against her. But it, it just seems funny. It's like she just seems way too cute to be a homeless person. Um, which I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's like angry homeless people. You cannot send in angry emails. (laughs) All the homeless people on Tumblr are going to call in. Yeah, they're going to be mad at me. All you guys on your, (laughs) all the homeless people on your iPads, chill the fucking out. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, well, this is, this is kind of a trope with this series. Unlike Angel, where like it's, where they and I hate to keep comparing to Angel, but people do compare it, and this is where it is different. It's like whereas Angel, he tries to do good stuff, but he he doesn't know how to do good stuff properly. Sometimes he's like, you know, he's like, I did this for you, and people are like, yeah, uh, you know, he's like, he's a, he's a vampire with a soul, and like I I think this is where the big disconnect is is the Angel show is about a vampire who's trying to be a detective. And Forever Night really comes off as a cop who's trying to be a vampire. You know, he's like, he's a cop pretty well, actually, but he has special powers. You know, he's like Nightman. You know, he plays sax and, you know, he he has all these outside interests. (laughs) And they really drive home. Yeah, you know, at least once once an episode that he does good things. He's a good guy. You know, he, 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 he's not just evil. He does good things. He helps homeless hot, you know, Ezra Dax, you know. I, I, I don't know. To me, it seemed like, the, the, like the, this is not me. I'm glad you had us watch this. Like, I, I enjoyed, like, checking it out and everything and, and researching and stuff like that. I'm not going to say I'm never going to watch another episode of Forever Night because I probably will. It was kind of fun. Like, I get what you're saying. It was, it was one of those syndicated shows. Yeah. And in terms of the world of, of syndication, it's definitely at – at the 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 farther ebb of the end, you know, it's a seven, eight, nine, as opposed to like a the one, two, three that fucking Xena and Hercules were, or whatever. Yeah. Right? And and yeah, and, yeah. and and so I, I get what you're saying. Um, but it, it just seemed like like most stuff in syndication, like it's so not subtle. Like he goes home to his apartment. Yeah. Of course, these guys have like huge ass lofts, and you're just like, wait a minute. How could a guy on a cop's salary <laughs> afford a fucking apartment this fucking huge? And then he's got all these cool, like, you know, automated fucking blast shield fucking things that come down on the windows. And he's got tons of TV sets to watch Bella Lugosi on or whatever the fuck. And like, and then he, like, he busts open his refrigerator. Like, he can't wait to get his bottles of animal blood or whatever. And then it's like he's guzzling it down and it's like it's dripping off his chin like you wouldn't know he's a fucking vampire if you didn't see this is what i i i know i we were saying how i liked uh well we all liked uh justice league uh gods and monsters and everything but that was one of the things about the yeah, Kirk yeah. langstrom thing that cracked me up it's like like i'm not gonna know he's a fucking vampire i gotta see the little strawberry jam like dripping down the sides of his mouth. And, like, I don't know why that drives me crazy, but it just does. And in this, it's the same thing. It's like, gulp, 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 and then it's, like, drip down the side. It's like, okay, like, I don't fucking know he's a vampire already. It's like, all right. Like, now, it's like, now if you had any doubt, if, like, the old lady who was, like, just not paying attention to this for, like, the first, 
like 15 minutes, like walks in the room. <laughs> then she'd be like, oh, hey, Bob, it's a vampire. You know, and you're just like, oh, I was okay, just thinking, hey. oh, it's the vampire. Yeah, exactly. Oh, he's the vampire. Like, it's like basically for those people. It's like, if you didn't know, <laughs> Nick Knight. Knight. Nick Knight. Who, like, is Knight. It's like, he's also a vampire. You know, and you're just like, oh, okay. You know, so it's just like, we all right. No, Nick at night. It's like, and it's like, as I drink my animal blood, it's like, okay, then they flash back to Paris, where it's like, oh, this, this like, my 900th meal reminds me of my first meal. And then they flash back. And of course, these flashbacks were not in the CBS thing. Um, and so he, and it's like, it's a flashback, but it's a dream and like he wakes up and like, he's, you know, obviously I guess, again, it's not subtle. They're trying to show you he's tormented. It's like, Oh, I didn't mean to drink this lady's blood, but I had to drink this lady's blood. Otherwise I would have died, but I feel really, really guilty and bad about drinking this lady's blood like 800 years ago. You know, it's like, and he wakes up in a sweat and then Basically, he's listening to his voicemail messages, kind of like in that scene in Daredevil where Ben Affleck's getting, you know, voicemail messages from all the, uh, you know, Easter egg girlfriends he's had in the comics over the years and all this stuff. And so the the curator lady from the museum, her name's Elise Hunter. And so she calls up and it's like she totally wants his jock. Like you said, he he loves him and leaves him or whatever. And she totally wants Nick Knight's jock. And she's like, Nick, it's like, you want to talk later? And, uh, you know, we might be able to find something out about that chalice. You know, and stuff. And that's basically. Well, well it, 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 it's also because, like, again, because Nick is the most interesting man in the world. She's going through some photos. And like they, they, she sees Nick at the original dig site where they found a Mayan cup. So that's how he knows Mayan. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that I mean that that comes up later in the 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 pilot, and then he goes to visit her and everything. But yeah, it's it's like totally like, yeah. and and like she seems like so like oh well you know she she's like totally scared, and then when when he shows up, then it's like oh it's all better now that you're here with me, you know and stuff. So. It's kind of like, you know, and then, and then I started to wonder, like, if uh, this is something I was going to ask Mike about, but like, do, do you think like they had the same, like, even, even in the 89 pilot and this pilot, they both have the lines about like, dude, go easy on the hemoglobin, dude. And it's like, did they have the same like Fox kids rule that like Morbius had? Like, is this like, they can only <laughs> say plasma. like, it's like they can only say plasma and hemoglobin. Like they can't say blood. I'm like, seriously? Like I'm all, dude, you guys are not a cartoon. Like you're not Fox kids, <laughs> Spider-Man. Like you can't say blood. Like what's the matter? It's like go easy on the hemoglobin, you know? And I'm like, okay. Well, well there's a, there's an interesting point of this is like, and it happens a couple times in the series. I don't know why. This is kind of a Vampire the Masquerade role-playing thing. But um, if you if a vampire drinks too much blood, they actually can get kind of drunk. And he'll do this later on in the in the pilot. And he does it a couple times during the series. But apparently drinking blood can get you 
fucked up. If you well, see, that, that's, that's, it, that's so. what I mean about it not being subtle. Like, it's not just that it's a metaphor for being an alcoholic. It's like he literally is an alcoholic when he drinks fucking animal blood. And it's like, that's why when the, the lady comes in, it's like, you gotta stay off the juice, Nick. It's like, no, give me that bottle! Give me that fucking bottle! You know? And you're just like, dude, you're a vampire, not a fuck. I mean, I get that it's a metaphor. They, they, they keep harping on it like, like Skanky, man. He's like, addiction, man. It's a hard thing to get over. I can't stop smoking these smokes. Addiction. It's a bitch. You wouldn't know anything about it. I got the tough thing. I got to get over the smokes. And then, of course, the vampire, you know, Nick Knight's like, yes, I, I don't know anything about addiction. I wouldn't know a damn thing. It's like, wah, 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 you know, and you're just like, okay, like, that's that's one of those things where it's like, I'm syndicated television. I will bang you over the head with this point until you understand it, you know, so there's nothing there's nothing really subtle about it or anything. And and what's funny is, like, I think, like, they, they had to make up stuff to get the plot moving, like, because it's like, all of a sudden, it's like, they're driving and doing this night night shift together where they're doing partners and they're in the same car for the one night and it's like vampire super senses like it's like like it reminded me of like you know the old uh nicholas hammond spider sense you know where it's like i can see stuff before it happens and it's like all of a sudden he like screeches his car and him and skanky are like fighting this guy who has like an uzi in the middle of chinatown and then that's another interesting casting change because then yeah because he because he, he, he heard the girl screaming yeah yeah he heard the girl screaming with his vampire senses and then to show th- this is another interesting casting change which actually probably makes you think the character of Nick Knight is more worldly than he actually was in the Rick Springfield pilot because in the Rick Springfield pilot it's like just some crazy dude who's hopped up on drugs and he still is in this but. It's like there's there's like this this chick in the middle of L.A. and it's just you know it's just a white chick with blonde hair and she's like oh my god there's this crazy guy he's shooting everybody up and there's like another cop there and it's like yeah I think we got a shooter I think he's got a newsie like let's go upstairs and take him out or whatever and they go about doing what they do in this pilot but in this pilot it's actually they're going to Chinatown. So it's like they're speaking in either Cantonese or Mandarin or something like that. And it's like then basically Nick Knight's just like, yes, of course. And he talks back to them in the language and is like, there's a shooter up there and he's got a newsie and he's on drugs, you know, and it's like, oh, well, now, you know, like he's a vampire of the world and he can, you know, speak Mandarin or Cantonese or whatever. And, and he's super cool. So it's it's that whole like Superman, Batman thing, like where they speak like every fucking language that's ever been invented, even if you've never even heard of the language before. Like, like that's how, that's one of their superpowers. So like, that's one of it must be one of his vampire superpowers or something that he can speak whatever language he, uh, he needs to at any given time. Or unlimited yeah. memory capacity. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, like I said, he, he definitely does tend to have the, uh, Vampire utility belt, you know. I'm sure he's got vampire shark propelling in there somewhere. I'm sure. So, so I mean, they they go to stop this shooter, and I guess he leaves Skanky at the front to like talk this guy down. But meanwhile, he goes behind the. Well, it's like he he instead of being at the front door, he says he's going to go behind, and Skanky's like, "What the fuck does that mean?" And of course, since he's a vampire, he like flies up to the window and grabs him and 
like smashes him through and everything. And then it's like, I, I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, so he throws him into a fucking, I think they both fall into like a trash dumpster. And I'm kind of like, yeah, dumpster, yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, because because trash dumpsters are always filled with like marshmallows and fucking feathered pillows, right? They, they don't have like glass or anything that could hurt anybody, right? So, um, or homeless people. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, and and, and yeah. this is this is part of the portion that Mike was probably talking about, like where I mean, it's it the the takedown is is kind of you know it's like he's flying and it's kind of poorly shot what was interesting is in the cbs version he gets shot all the shit and he falls into like a i think like a swimming pool or something like that and then he like huh. flies out of the swimming pool and it's just like and then the shooter's like, holy shit, what the fuck, you know, and that kind of thing. So, the, you know, the action, it's like the script is the same, but the action beats are, this, are, are a bit different in, in that sense. This kind of dropped it dropped it down a couple of notches. It was like, oh, okay, they did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not, I mean, it's it's like, you know, yeah, so it, it wasn't, I don't know. I don't know which one I like better because they're, they're both elements of like it's like once they have the full on vampire makeup and they start flying around. I mean, you know, it's kind of like Mike said, they they look kind of cheesy no matter which which version it is, you know, whether it's the Rick Springfield version or whether it's the the uh, Geraint Vin Davies version. You know, they, they both kind of look kind I don't know. To me, they both kind of look goofy when they're flying around no matter what. You know, yeah, but they're just like, yeah, just a little bit more effort put into the CBS version. Like, I mean, obviously they're they're a big network, but you know, I mean, at the same time, it's like I, I get what you're saying because, like, like you said, there's there's a lot of syndicated shows during this time that actually did go the extra mile, and they kind of worked around it. You know, it's like because TNG had moments where it's like that was kind of low budget, but you made it work, and you know, with this is. There are points I, I will admit when I watched the show where I was like, "That was kind of cheesy." <laughs> you know, it was like oh, they, they, they could have done better. I, I was gonna say, like, I think it it's, it might have worked a little to their advantage to be a little more like low tech because, like, on Buffy and Angel, sometimes like the like the the, yeah. the yeah. makeup and the the fangs kind of made it hard. Like some some of the actors had trouble speaking. It seemed seemed like when they had the fangs in their mouth and. I don't know, maybe they had trouble acting like a, a Star Trek actor or something when they have all the like stuff on their forehead or whatever. Yeah, I can. I, I, I remember I, I was never really impressed with uh, the, the master. The master vampire always was like, get him roughly, that she will get him The next few months are going to be quite a ride. And I think we're all going to learn something about ourselves in the process. You'll learn you're a pathetic schmuck. Speaking of effects and and things like that, I, I think this is probably a good moment because I, I wasn't quite sure if uh, I, I'm assuming that that Nick Knight feeds on the shooter, you know, that that he, he feeds on the guy that's blowing all these people away in Chinatown <laughs> and stuff. And in that scene and then in a lot of the later scenes, I got the vibe, like, I think the version that we were watching was the U.S. release. And my understanding is there's a U.S. DVD release, 
And then there's what what they refer to as maybe the European or the German DVD release. And apparently oh, okay. there's different content in the German release because I, I assume it's slightly longer because they talk about like edited versus unedited. So like, for instance, when the homeless guys get attacked and stuff and it just seems to like cut away and you're like, well, what the fuck happened? And it's like, Ooh! and then it's like, oh, the camera goes away. You know, and you're like, I don't know what happened. Like, I assume maybe there was some shots where there were there was actually maybe some blood or some gore or something like that. And maybe, you know, when he's feeding on the guy in the dumpster or whatever the fuck, like maybe there's more extended shots of gore. So I, you know, I, I, I didn't find anything that specifically showed it. I don't know that I'm enough of a fan to be like, I want to see all the versions of Forever Night, you know, like I, I was just like, OK, we're going to watch this for the show and I'll, I'll check out some stuff. But I, I'm imagining what we saw was the cut version because there were, you know, some of those scenes did you did have the vibe where you're like, oh, it feels like this was slightly confused, like there should be some more to this. And when I read that there was sort of a uncut version where there was probably a little more gore then, you know, then they would let on U.S. television. I was like, oh, okay, well, that kind of makes sense because I felt like, you know, certain scenes got cut short. Uh, I could tell you as a fan of this show, and I actually enjoy watching it, I didn't know about that, so you, you did more research than I did. So <laughs> Okay, okay. Yeah, I just, I mean, it was just something where I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I didn't, I don't think I've ever seen whatever I'm talking about, like the German version, the, the European version, but, but it's kind of like, especially like to me, like, you know, moving forward with the, the plot here, you know, it's like when they cut back to homeless Esri, you know, it's like, she's talking to her homeless buddy and that guy gets attacked. And I'm kind of thinking, well, there wasn't a whole lot shown. It was like, Oh my God, you're being attacked. Cut the commercial. Ah! You know? And I'm like, Oh, well, I'm like, I didn't see anything. So I'm thinking to myself, Oh, I wonder if that's edited, you know, like, I wonder if that's the toned down version and maybe that guy actually got messed up more, you know, but that you could actually see and stuff. And then, and then this is the point where after we cut back from the commercial break, that's the point where you were talking about before where the, the museum creator, uh, curator lady, uh, finds Nick Knight's photo in this book. And it's kind of like, Oh my God, his photo is in this book. Oh, so. It's going to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it gets kind of weird here because, um, you know, it's like talking about how he kissed her and stuff after, like, they, they like, you know, met, meet and everything because he's like, oh, she's hot. I like her. And, you know, you, you know, like, you know, when the, the give, me, give me a smoochy smoochy. <laughs> I'm like, you know, when the he gets all upset, he, you know, when the saxophone music is playing on the syndicated TVs that people have to make out, it's like contractual obligation yeah 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 it, it, it's really funny because like they, tr they try to do this kind of uh i don't know like i hate to say this i really do guys i'm sorry but it's kind of bella and edward moment where you know he's like oh these holes in my leather jacket there's a drug dealer and he was shot while he's wearing you know he's just like you know it's like, like oh you're, you're giving you this backstory She's like, your lame black overcoat is turning me on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, a friggin', it's like, it's, like, it's friggin', uh, what's his face? Um, uh, uh, when, um, 
oh, what's his name? Um, no, Chris Kattan does like Antonio Banderas like on SNL when he's like, too sexy, too sexy. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was just it, it, it's not awkward. I mean, like I said, but like you said, Mike, I agree. The uh, the creator is a little bit hotter than like the intended supposed love interest, I would say. But um, there's actually another love interest, but we'll get into that later. But um, yeah, it's just like you know, it, it's not forced. I mean, they do have some chemistry, but at the same time, it's just like he's trying to hard. Just like you know, it, it's like it's like if you meet a nerdy girl. And she's like, oh, yeah, I really like Transformers. He's like, I bought every Transformer ever made. She's like, okay, calm down. <laughs> you know? He's like, you're trying a little bit too hard. I know you're like a Transformers fan. She's like, I know you're a vampire. You don't have to show me you're a vampire so much. You could just, why don't you have a soda? And we can have a chat, you know. But she totally falls for it. Yeah, she totally, like, lip locks. I mean, he's a vampire. Vampires get vagina like crazy. That's just how it is. You know, obviously he's tempted, and then he he, he resists the, the, the temptation, and then he ninja banishes into yeah, the yeah, night. Yeah, he does do it. Yeah, and but but then then we go back to that thing I was making fun of earlier, where you were saying like how how the alcohol metaphor, the alcoholic metaphor, is quite literal because now he's like he's back in his huge ass loft. He's watching, <laughs> you know, he's watching Dracula from 1931. And drinking his animal blood, and that's when like Doctor Lambert comes in and is like, "You gotta stop drinking this stuff, otherwise I can't cure you." And then that's when he's like, "You know, give me that bottle." You know, he's just like totally like, like I need my stuff. You know, and it's like, all right, no, mate. Yeah, and and she even hears a message on his machine, and she's like worried about him, and like he's like, "Yeah, I kissed her, and I wanted to kill her, but it didn't." (laughs) You know, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, and and based, you know, at this point, this is where we find out some more of the backstory that these that there's a pair of these jade cups, and the one that was stolen from the museum is one that that Nick Knight also has. Like he has one of the pair of cups, and I guess if you put them together, they're supposed to be a cure for vampirism. And then and then this is when. You know, basically in the CBS pilot, this is the first you hear of Lacroix, basically, who is the man who sired Nick Knight. And, and, and of course, since we saw this pilot, he's the guy you see in the opening that sires him, basically. And, and he's, he's basically, you know, toying with Nick Knight. Like he, he's purposely keeping that cup away from Nick so that he can't cure himself. It's like, I, I sired you and I do not you know, want you to, to cure yourself or whatever. And uh, then, oh, go ahead. I I was going to say, if anything else to the series, I really like Lacroix. He's, he's a pretty cool, badass like villain. I kind of dig him. Yeah, he, he was fine. I mean, I, I think both of them were, it's weird. I think the CBS pilot, he came across more as like a, Anne Rice type vampire, if that makes any sense. Like he was a little more, he was a little more gay on the the eighty nine. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, in, in the ninety two one, in the ninety two one, I didn't really get that vibe. Like I got that he sired him and he wanted to have some control over him and everything, but I don't know. Like the 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 other guy, I, I forget who plays him in the CBS one, but he was kind of like a Steven Seagal type. Where he and, and but then he was like touching his face all the time, going like, 
I sired you. You know, and you're just kind of like, that's kind of creepy. You know, whereas the, I, I think the guy who plays him in this, like, he's creepy, but not, I don't know, there just didn't seem to be any kind of tension between them. It was just kind of like, oh, okay. Like, like there's, you know, they, obviously he's, he's messing around with them and everything, but that's sort of where it ended. So. Well, I, I've always been a fan of uh, super villains or just even regular villains in like a TV show who prefer to go for mind games instead of just like, I want to beat the shit out of you. So and that's why I think I kind of like LaCroix because he's like very, uh, very manipulative. He's like, you know, I'm going to do this and this and this because I want to fuck you later with this. And instead of just like, you know, Otis didn't hit me to kill you. So I, I think that's why I like him a little bit more. So just continuing along with the whole plot of this original pilot, like we basically <laughs> cut to a scene of exciting homeless basketball. Cause I guess all these guys are playing basketball and uh, it's part of the plot. Cause I guess there's a blood bank there. And so I guess the way a lot of these homeless guys uh, finance, you know, any of their stuff, whether they're getting like, you know, smokes or alcohol or whatever they're spending the money on like they actually go to the blood bank and they give blood and then they're paid for, for giving their blood and stuff. But I guess in the background, there are these dudes playing basketball. And then, you know, as they're playing basketball, I guess the ball gets, you know, somebody throws the ball and it, it bounces off the court or whatever. And so this one poor guy, you know, walks, walks out of spawn alley, out of the basketball court or whatever with all the homeless bums. And then it's like, oh, holy shit, there's this other homeless guy, and he's, like, chopped up in a fucking barrel, you know? And and so that was Esri Dax's buddy that we, we saw getting attacked and accosted earlier. So now he's all chopped up in this barrel and everything. And so, I, you know, Nick Knight takes this really hard because he's like, oh, I should have offered them a place to stay. I should have invited them to my, my huge-ass loft that has enough in it to fucking house like uh, half a third world country but i just use it to drink animal blood and watch fucking bella lugosi movies or whatever and so like he's so dist- yeah. he's so distressed he dresses up in in mike's favorite trench coat and goes off to a rock club which i found hilarious because he's wearing this goofy ass trench coat i don't even know how to describe the trench coat but it's got that that almost rain smock chest top to it where it's like flaring uh, at the top and then and then he's also it, it, it's actually called it's, it's actually an old uh wild west uh trench coat it's called a duster, a duster. it actually has like a covering of, yeah 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 so he's, he's got the duster on and he's got fucking shades on in the middle of the darkest like you know it's it's a nightclub like i mean it's a rock club like <laughs> and he's got like dark ass shades and a duster in a nightclub, like it 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 fucking cracked me up. Like, and th- this is where he meets yeah. uh, he meets <laughs> Jeanette. You know, it's like the French Jeanette. lady. You know, which you know what I'm gonna give props to the Canadian version for this because the of course the L.A. actors in the CBS version, you don't buy for a minute that any of these motherfuckers ever came from Paris. Like, you just don't. Like, they all. They all sound like L.A. douchebags and that. So so I'm going to give props to the Canadian version, because at least when they start busting out French and, and they have the little subtitles and everything, you're like, 
oh yeah, like, you know, I buy this. They were talking subtitles in the opening, and now they're talking subtitles. And I, I thought the lady who played Jeanette was really good looking, actually. And like, compared to, you know, the, the Canadian version compared to the the CBS version. So, so I'm going to give props to that. So. I, I will say one thing. The only thing that really like threw me was she was like, I'm here because Toronto reminds me of Paris. And I'm like, that's like saying Boston reminds you of Ireland. Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're, they're completely, they're completely similar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, no, Toronto is not like Paris. Yes, there's there's French Quebecers there, but come on now. <laughs> well, you know, maybe maybe it's that she she can't go back to Paris because she's already done too much vampire bullshit there. So she's got to lay low in some other some other place that that that's a poor substitute. So, but um, that's two biggest uh, addictions are blood and poutine. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> You know what I wanted to mention? Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but uh, the actress who plays uh, Natalie, Catherine Disher, was the voice of Jean Grey on the 90s X-Men cartoon. Yeah, I think I think I did read that, so that's kind of interesting. But yeah, she must so be... Instead of, instead of Scott, she was like, Nick! <laughs> <laughs> Nick! Stop it! He can't survive much more! Does she go Dark Phoenix later on in the... <laughs> Scott, I always love you. I don't you. think so. She goes like dark, like coroner or dark whatever. coroner. It's like you must drink the animal. No, no, that is a, a pretty uh, stable character throughout the series. She uh, she has a good dark nat. So nice. Yeah, I, I would figure with syndicated television, they're not gonna they're not gonna throw you too many curveballs like that. That would that would confuse all the old ladies who are just figuring out that. Nick Knight's a vampire by the first 15 minutes of this. Batwalk yeah. <laughs> never did this shit. What the hell's going on? <laughs> what is this crap? Um, anyway, so, uh, so, so the curator lady follows Nick home from the club, and in his car, he then turns on the radio and hears the voice of the DJ, and it turns out it's the man he's been looking for. The vampire who sired him, LaCroix. It's like, the Nightcrawler is waiting for you. You know, and at that point, I was like, I was like, oh, they better hurry up to wrap this shit up. Because I was thinking, like, that was going to be the end of the pilot. And I'm like, oh, it's, uh, you know, I guess, I I, they, I bet you they aired this. I, I don't know, Tony. Do you, do you remember, like, when you watched this? Like, because I know you said you started watching somewhere around the late second season, but I would imagine they aired the whole two hour thing in one sitting, maybe on the first night, but it must be one of those things where they, for syndication purposes or something, they, they chop it up right here. Cause it's like, after you get the, the radio, you know, night crawler thing, you know, with McQuaw, then um, like yeah, they yeah. cut it off and, and you got to watch dark Knight the second chapter or whatever. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That, that's what kind of threw me because, uh, like I said, I didn't see the first season uh, when it originally aired. Uh, I kind of, kind of came in the second season. But according to uh, uh, some research I did, it's, it's considered the third episode. Uh, the the uh, second part of it is considered the third episode because I guess they uh, aired them out of order at some point. 
and the first episode is actually considered the second, or it could be that they're actually taking into account the Rick Springfield movie, which would be interesting. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that could actually be considered yeah. the actual first episode. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's all crazy, timey-wimey stuff. But uh, as far as I know, from what the research I've, I've, I've done, this was actually, yeah, like it was a two-hour pilot, so... Yeah, so that's why I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta watch the second half so we can talk about it. But I mean, you know, exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, I would say that this stuff with Lacroix is like the main mythology of the show, you know. So it's like you're kind of looking forward to that. You know, Nick Knight basically comes face to face with him, and they're fighting in the middle of this. I guess it's like a some kind of like Meat slaughter slaughterhouse or something. Yeah, so. Yeah. So and, and um, I, I was gonna, I was gonna bring up one interesting point that I thought was actually kind of a, another callback to the Buffy Angel thing. Uh, Lacroix apparently really loves to play the violin, which uh, Rutger Hauer was a big fan of of doing in the original Buffy movie, which I thought was kind of fun. Huh. Okay. I wonder the the Buffy movie definitely came after this, right? I think so. Yeah. Yes, yes, it did. I think it came out in 1997 or 98. Okay. I think. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if Joss Whedon watched this and was just like, I, I could do this better. You know, just like that. I just wonder if he did that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which entire... he did. I mean, yeah. yeah. No, it's entire... but, but yeah, anyway, yeah. But uh, yeah, the meatpacking plant. Yeah, it's like yeah, and it, this is the first time he's seen Lacroix in a long time. Like he hasn't been fucking with him for a while, so this is kind of not. It's not penultimate. There's going to be more stuff with Lacroix, but like you said, this is like the first time they've seen each other in a long time. Yeah, because it's like it, it's interesting because I think in the the CBS pilot, the curator lady isn't just like I don't know. In this, it seems like she's sort of stalking Nick like following him. I think in the, the CBS thing, she's actually in the car with him when he hears the Lacroix over the radio as the DJ. So it's not like so sort of crazy that she just happens to follow him into the, you know, the slaughterhouse. And then, you know, it's like, Oh, like basically like I, I there's some cool stuff that they establish with that though. It's like, she's spying on them and she's expecting to be able to catch up to them pretty quickly, but then she's kind of surprised, like, how they sort of vampire up to the fire escape where they go, they move so fast and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Lacroix, basically, I mean, you know, it's pretty it's pretty simple. You know, he's butthurt because he's the one who gave Nick Knight immortality, and so he's kind of like, but you betrayed me, you know, I got a bunch of hate, and and disdain and everything and i gave you immortality and it's like you don't you didn't appreciate me and all that kind of stuff and and so you know lacroix confirms he's the one who killed the museum guard and stole the second cup the jade cup but he also mentions he's not the person who's been killing homeless guys and sticking them all in barrels so and, wait, and, wait, it, should, it should be mentioned that jeanette actually said that in the last episode he's she was like but Lacroix's not doing that. She, you know, it's like she's like, you know, Lacroix is who he is, but he's not the one killing homeless people. So there's an interesting twist there. Yeah. So 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 we don't quite know what the deal is with that, and and it's like he's of course not so subtly 
tempting Nick Knight to to give in to his his vampire tendencies. You know, he eats him down. He's trying to pour blood all over his face and everything. And so then, you know, of course, the curator lady who's been seeing all this from behind the scenes finally screams when Nick goes full on vampire. And then Nick is telling her to leave. And of course, Lacroix immediately exploits this weakness he sees and he takes the curator <laughs> lady hostage. And then he's basically like, you must choose between the cup or the girl, you know? And it's like, oh no, what do we do? And like, Nick's actually like, well, I don't know. Maybe I should choose that cup. But eventually he's like, I'm a good guy. <laughs> he's like, I gotta choose the girl. So he lets the cup break. It's like, it's a very nice cup. It's like, I could, I, I could use that cup. Um, what I drink my Sprite out of. Like I've been, I've been looking for that cup for a long time. It's like, okay, no, she kisses really nice too. So I'm gonna go save the girl. So, uh, but Lacroix like ends up throwing Nick off the railing, and um, Elise, you know, the curator lady, she makes her getaway, and Lacroix like, he he's basically going through like the list of of vampire mortality. And so he's like, I could do this, I could do that, I could do this, but it's like, since we don't have any of that, I can always decapitate you. And then it's like, Nick basically goes all Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, like, impales him on some kind of meat hook or whatever. And it's weird because you would think, like, even if Nick Knight didn't know all the rules of being a vampire, even though he's been a vampire for 800 years, and even though... (laughs) Even though, Lacroix, back, yeah. even though Lacroix has just gone through verbalizing all the things that can and cannot kill vampires, you th- like as I, I was like sitting there going, "Is that like a wooden like meat hook?" Like, and I go, "I don't think so." Like, I'm like, "What? Why is he dead?" You know, and and, and there's this kind of scene where he's like, you know, I guess he caresses him gently, like he kind of touches his leg, and then it's like, oh, you know, there's a flashback or whatever. And, and, and like, they kind of go into how, you know, th- this is kind of what I was talking about before, where they go into, like, oh, it seems like five minutes after Nick Knight was turned into a vampire, it was, like, immediately, he's like, I regret this. You know, like, it's just, like, I don't want to do this anymore. And and I just thought it was kind of funny, because it's, like, it seemed like he was, as opposed to, you know, Angelus, I suppose, who reveled in his time as a vampire and was an evil son of a bitch. It's, like, and then he got a soul. It seems like, you know, this this guy has always had a soul the whole time, or for lack of a better, you know, terminology or whatever. Um, I'll bring up two things right now. Uh, one is actually a point in this show's favor, which is, is nice for a change. And one is also another point in the show's favor, which is also nice. Um, Nick shows a vampire face, which Buffy and Angel did. They actually had, like... Like Nick, you know, people being like normal looking humans, and then they'd be all like, hey, it's not quite as good in this show, I admit. But he still does have a vampire face, you know, he does, you know, you know, does the whole thing. Um, also, in ancient vampire lore, um, especially like Bram Stoker's Dracula and stuff like that, um, a wooden stake to the heart does not kill a vampire, it puts him into a state of uh, coma or a state of inactivity where. Breaching the heart just makes them dormant, 
and you can remove the stake, and they will be alive. The only way to kill a vampire is either one through sunlight or two by decapitation, like uh, Lacroix said. So that was actually kind of a nice thing that like Lacroix comes back after this because he was just impaled. And yeah, I'm sure it hurts like a son of a bitch, but it actually does hold true to the vampire mythology. Yeah, but I, I still, I had my, my nerd, like, angry rant about that because I'm kind of like, okay, he, he has his little flashback where all of a sudden the flashbacks are no longer in French because all the other ones were in French, but now all of a sudden they're in English <laughs> again. And, and then he, he, he runs away and then you see Lacroix, like, turn and smile while he's still impaled. And I'm kind of just thinking to myself, wait a minute, if you know the fucking rules, like, why didn't he decapitate him while he was on that fucking hook? Or why not, like, I, I, I don't know. The the other thing I thought was funny was if if Nick Knight felt so guilty <clears throat> about taking someone's life, it's like, why did he not just, like, I don't know, jump out into the sun right away, like the next morning or something like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, like, like I started wondering stuff like that. I mean, I guess that's, you know, if they did that, there would be no show. Right. But, but I, I, yeah. I, I sort of had those thoughts, like, why not? You know, I mean, if, if it sucks so bad to be a vampire, like if you got turned and you're like, wait a minute, I thought I wanted this, but I, I know now, like I couldn't live with myself. Then why are you living with yourself? You know what I mean? Like that, that's all. Yeah, I'm yeah. Wondering. I, well, it, 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 it was just like a small, like you know, kind of a reference because in Buffy, as Mike knows, in Angel, both of those, a vampire when they get to the stake, they turn to ash and they flame up and they turn into like you know dust. And I was like, actually, no, they don't. So I thought that was kind of cool, but I, I do understand where you're coming from. It's like the guy fucking smiles at you and you're like, I didn't kill you. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, it's like clearly he thought he had killed him. So, and I'm just kind of like, well, yeah. you you didn't. So, and then this is where the callback yeah. to, I guess, his classic dumbass. <laughs> this is yeah. this is actually the callback to his classic Cadillac Coupe de Ville. And so, this is the classic car he has in the show. Uh, according to my research, in the show they uh, basically refer to it as a '62. Coupe de Ville, but apparently it was played by a pair of car actors who were actually 1961 caddies. So, and and the reason why, uh, he, come and, on. and and the reason why he he chose that car, uh, I guess uh, the, you know the, this is something he mentions to Skanky at the beginning of the the first episode is is like, do you know Trump why? He's like, it has the biggest trunk space. And this, of course, pays off here because now it's turning, you know, the, the, basically the dawn is starting to come after he's had this fight with Lacroix. Yeah. And so, it, as opposed to getting burnt it, up to death. Basically, his coffin. Yeah, he, he jumps yeah. into the back of the yeah. trunk. <laughs> it's his coffin. I was just super worried. I was like, oh shit, does Angel drive a fucking caddy too? And so I looked it up <laughs> and it turns out. It turns out the Angel deal, as Spike likes to call it, is actually a 1967 Plymouth GTX Chevrolet Impala. So I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like it's not, it's not the exact same car. So, so we're we're okay. Oh, okay. Does it have like a lot of trunk space stuff? That's that's the one we're. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> no, I have no idea. But um, it, I mean, it's a classic car. It's from the late 60s instead of the early 60s. But that's that's about where the comparisons end. 
I thought that that's that's the thing about Forever Night is like they do have stupid moments where it's just like okay, you impaled him, he's still alive, you walk away, and you're just like it, like Mike said, dumbass. But at the same time, like that little clever thing about the car is like I could this is my like mobile like coffin. That that is kind of cool. That is kind of like you know okay, I can see that. Yeah, you yeah. Like, you don't need to. It's kind of funny because, you know, the curator lady, Elise, is like calling to the station to see if he made made it out of that fight alive and he hasn't checked in yet. And then what's funny is the police end up to see our car back to the station. And like in the meantime, Skanky, he picks up the car and he decides, oh, this is cool. I'm going to take it out (laughs) for a spin. And of course, it's like, okay, then this is the first inkling we get where there's this mystery doctor guy at the blood bank. And, you know, basically, Nick ends up leaving once Skanky parks in the hospital parking garage. And then, basically, that blood bank guy, like, he he's our number one suspect now because his name's Fenner, and he tries to sabotage the car. And so, of course, there's this goofy-ass scene where Skanky pumps up the polka music. And he's like driving along yeah, that's, super that's fast, kind of music, yeah. you know, and it's like, <laughs> I, if there's anything to drive fast to and rock out to, I guess it's polka music or, or I guess that's what Skanky thinks. And so it's like, and then all of a sudden it's like, he's in speed and he's like, Oh shit, man, I can't break. And again, calling back to the low budget nature of the show, they cut to a fucking commercial. They don't show you the crash. And then they cut back to the fucking oh, yeah. auto. They, they, well, it's funny. They cut back to Elise, I guess, because she's like falling asleep or something. And then they cut back to the auto shop with Skanky talking to like one of the mechanics. And it's like, he's like, you got a whole new car because I can't repair this shit, you know, like, basically. And um, basically due to the accident that resulted from the sabotage from Fenner, the blood bank guy, it's like Nick is somehow still stuck inside the trunk because the trunk is, I guess, squished or flattened or something. Like, basically, they can't pry open the trunk because of the way the car crashed. But then, like, this is the something I was going to ask you guys about, and I kept rewinding this because I'm like, I don't – I. this is the part I didn't get other than maybe he couldn't do it because he was afraid he was in daylight but now he knew he was in the mechanic shop or something. But I was like, if he can't get out of the trunk, it's like, then the next minute he's out of the trunk. And it's like, some yeah, kind of, yeah, and it's like it was some kind yeah, of magic. And like, and like, and like, and he was like, what's going on? He's like, Oh, let me tell you what happened. <laughs> it was like some kind of magical vampire trick. And I mean, the only way I could no prize it was, I was like, well, maybe he thought he was like outdoors before, you know, like in the sun. And that's why he couldn't do it until this point, but I'm like, but he was in the parking garage too. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I was confused. Like if he heard the he guy used his vampire herring to determine where he was, I guess. Yeah. But, but he was in the parking garage before. Like, couldn't he have stopped the guy from sabotaging the car? If he could just magically come out of the back of the trunk. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I was, well, see the thing is, is like uh, Dr. Hunter, the curator is, on her way there she hasn't gotten there yet and he heard her car leave her parking lot he's like okay vagina i'm a vampire i have to get out of this fucking trunk so give me a minute 
Let me pull a pen and teller because I've got to get those beeps. <laughs> okay. That yeah, that's as good as explanation as any, I guess. So, so speaking of beeps, the lure, the lure of boobs <laughs> gave him the power to speaking, the speaking of beeps, uh, Doctor Elise Hunter, beeps goes to Nick's loft, <laughs> and there she finds Esri Dax all banged up in the elevator. And if you think that some hot three-way is about to happen with homeless hottie and and curator hottie, you'd be wrong. But uh, you know she is very sick. I guess this homeless lady, and and then the doctor calls an ambulance, and of course Esri Dax is freaking out because she figures, you know, she knows that this blood bank guy is the one killing all the homeless people, and he's going to show up. And then in the meantime. Nick Knight and Detective Skanky both figure out, like, oh, well, this blood bank guy, Fenner, his mom, died from a bunch of uh, shittily advertised O-type blood from homeless people. So, like, that, I guess that's his, you know, you stub my toe moment. It's like, my mom was supposed to get, like, good O-type blood, but instead, like, you know, homeless people just wanted their 20 bucks and an orange or whatever they give you after you give blood. And didn't probably report the blood correctly or something like that, and that caused his mother to die because they she got the wrong blood type, and so that's why it's like I that's you know you stub my toe because you killed my mother supposedly, and that's why he's going after all these these homeless people, and so of course uh, Elise Hunter uh, lets him right up because she's like oh. Are you there? An ambulance? I called you. You came really quickly. Come right up. <laughs> you know, we're on we're on whatever floor in this huge ass loft. So come right up. And then of course Nick calls for, her for, up. For, for, for a scholar, she's kind of doing a der moment on this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Basically. Like she well, she hasn't picked up on it yet. And then of course Nick calls her uh at his home. And then, and then basically he can hear, not with vampire superhearing, but just over the phone, that they're all getting assaulted by this blood bank guy, Fenner. And so then he goes and flies off in the first person, shitty first person flight, you know, the first person flight to go save them and shit. <laughs> and, um, and then it, this part kind of cracked me up because in the meantime, it's like Esri Dax is trying to like, fend off the, the murderer with, like, a broomstick, like, and I'm... Just I was about to say, she has a broom, motherfucker. She is badass. <laughs> it's like, you, you stay away from me, or I will sweep you. <clears throat> I will sweep you up. And then, of course, she gets the bright idea to stick the broomstick in the fireplace. And then, at that point, the guy snatches it straight out of her hand. And then... I guess, like, at that point, it started reminding me of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because I was like, oh, shit, like, Nick's cool-ass loft is about to burn down, like, TMNT style, you know, like, that all this stuff is getting set on fire. And, like, you know, Fenner's strangling the homeless girl, and as that happens, Nick Knight busts through the window and, uh, you know, flies around vampire style, grabs Fenner, and he's about to eat him which I would have been perfectly fine with, but then he decides to stop. 
And then, you know, to me, I'm like, there's a bunch of vampire blue balls in this series, probably, because it's like, I bet you there's going to be tons of times where it's like, you totally deserve this and I'm going to eat you. But no, I will not, you know. And, and I, I, I'm a I'm a I'm I'm a big fan of like Silver Age characters with, because of the whole not killing thing. But unlike Spider Man or Captain America or you know with Cyclops even you know it's like people get butt hurt when they kill people. I'm like Nick, you're a fucking goddamn vampire. Eat the motherfucker. Get it over with. You're not like you know the most you know like socially upstanding individual. You can eat this guy. He's a fucking horrible person. You made a bad choice. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, l- luckily for Nick, it's like we've got LaCroix there to eat the bad guy for us, and, and we, we don't have to go to sleep. Oh, yeah. You know, with a guilty conscience, I guess, because LaCroix shows up, and it's like, he must be a bad person, so he eats him. But, of course, because he eats him, he's more powerful <laughs> than Nick, because Nick... <laughs> Apparently is always weak sauce because he's never like he's only drinking animal blood and not drinking like human blood, so he's always weakened and everything. And then this odd I would, thing. I would I would I want to uh, sing your brother to you real quick, Derek. <clears throat> Thank you, Sid Cherry Arms, for killing my friend or my enemy that I didn't have to kill. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. That's that's what's going on there. It's like thank you for for taking the the. Uh, questionable moral stance out of my control and doing it for me because all of us here who are writing this and watching this know this guy needs to fucking get killed regardless of how it happens anyway so so at that point like because elise knows that nick is super weak she's like she gets the bright idea why don't you feed on me and then you know you can beat him up or whatever and, like, again, he's, like, super tempted where he's, like, yeah, I should totally, like, bite her neck. And then he's, like, well, wait a minute. I must stop. I must not do this. And then it's, like, you know, they they continue to fight. Nick tries to burn LaCroix, but he fails. And then it, I don't know, it's it's weird. It seems like it's all for nothing because LaCroix, like, quickly, like, you know, zooms over to Elise. He bites her on the neck. And then all of a sudden, then Nick gets uh, like his round do two wind or whatever because then he's he finds he picks up like that burning stake because everything's on fire so i guess it's like maybe the broom handle or something and it was on fire and he just he kills lacroix and then watches him burn and then i mean basically like that's sort of the end of the pilot but there's this weird wrap-up scene to me where, you know, they've got Nick at the museum with Dr. Lambert and Skanky. And I just felt like with all the people that died in that episode, it was a little too kind of like, you know, syndication, like where it's like, end of episode laughter, you know, wink, like, ha, 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 ha. Wasn't that a hilarious, you know, time we had? And I'm just kind of thinking like, but a lot of people died. Like, like, I don't know that you should be yucking it up too much at the end here, you know, like, but that was, that was my take. Well, I mean, well, especially like when our, our villain, he was like shown to be very methodical, supposedly, and very like, you know, deliberate in his actions. And it was like, no, his, his mom died from like hepatitis and he's just killing an all type of homeless because he'll find the right one who gave her hepatitis. Yeah, that's, that, that makes sense. 
you know, and then of course they have the the what a twist ending because it turns out that Elise didn't get killed by Lacroix because they all walk off oh, yeah. to the museum and then and then they see someone watch oh, you you know the audience we see someone watching from a window and it turns out it's vampire Elise you know dun 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 you know so I I assume uh, no. I assume she she becomes a character and and appears in later episodes and stuff yeah and you know. It it this is kind of a messy start of the show. Like I said, I got into this in season two, and I don't know if it just got better, but I enjoyed season two a lot. Season three, season three has a really good cliffhanger ending. Um, we will maybe get into that in a future episode. I don't know if uh, Derek wants to watch more of this. He seems like he's interested, but um. As a whole, I, I, I think the pilot, you know, as you said, Derek, you, you watched the, uh, you know, the uh, Rick Springfield version, which is totally fine. I mean, you know, it is the same story, just done in a different uh, aspect. You know, there's like different actors, some things are changed slightly and everything like that. Better production values against syndication values, which I, I totally appreciate. It's like, yeah, you can do this, but you have to do with this. But as a whole, like Forever Night is a really fun vampire romp. I mean, the the uh, the main actor who plays Nick Knight, which I again not going to say his name because it's so hard to say, but he he, he does have like that kind of it factor where you're like, oh, I kind of want to see him win. You know, he's like doing some bad dialogue. He's he's kind of muddling through some scenes, but he's also really enjoyable. And even Stanky, you know, he's 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 a good foil. He's an asshole. He's supposed to be an asshole. You're, you're supposed to like not really like him a lot. And there's a lot of hot babes in this. A lot of hot babes. 90s syndication was really good about the hot babes. I mean, they just do that. They 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 really hit the nail on the the head with that. You know, Kalisto and Zena and you know Manton Rolaren. I don't I don't give a shit. There there's a lot of hot babes in syndication. But as as far as a whole, I think this is a show that you should watch if you like just a fun kind of like copy supernatural show. This was like supernatural and angel before it was, I don't think angel ripped this off. I really don't. I think angel was trying to do a detective show, trying to do like, you know, a guy trying to find his way. I think this is more of a cop show. Like I said before, angel was a vampire trying to be a detective. This was a cop trying to be a vampire. And I think that really kind of comes through, especially in the second uh, season. And it's really interesting to see this character, you know, he he has superhero moments, but he is also trying to be a cop. He's, like, wanting to be a cop first and make, like, a legitimate life for himself. And like I said, Lacroix is a great villain. He pops up again. You will definitely see him more. And overall, it's like, I, I think watching this pilot after watching the second season made me really have like that nostalgia glasses kind of taken off and be like, okay, this is kind of crappy in some ways, but it does have that flavor. I liked that the second season delivered more and the third, third season really kind of, you know, ended on a, like not a bad note, but a very fun note. So I think forever night is, uh, kind of a missed gem. I think it's a really uh, fun series. I think people would actually enjoy it if they watched. 
What was? Do you have any final thoughts on on watching the Dark Knight pilot for Forever Night, Mike? I mean, it, I, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if I'm going to watch any more of it, but you know, I, I definitely thought it was interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll just say for myself, I, I think the parts that I was most interested in were what I would refer to as the vampire mythology portions, you know, the portions where they did delve into who he was before he became this police detective. And then when those aspects of his past come back to haunt him in present day, you know, like I liked him facing off against LaCroix. I preferred LaCroix to the, the blood bank guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I would almost yeah, yeah, be fine yeah. if that whole Blood Bank subplot had wasn't even in this pilot. You know what I mean? Like, I enjoyed the stuff with, with him and LaCroix and, and, and him and uh, Jeanette. You know, like, all that kind of stuff I was kind of interested in. But the, the police procedural stuff and, like, I don't know, that, that part seemed like it was a lot of hackneyed writing where, you know, you basically, as I said, the, the stuff that I thought I could hold against it is, you know, the procedural part of it seemed kind of hackneyed. And then, you know, it, the subtlety was non-existent. I mean, you, you're just, nothing is left to the imagination. And, and that part of it made it felt like, you know, it makes it feel like bad syndicated television. So it's like, I think if, if what you're saying is like season two and season three, you got more into it. If, if it had more of those vampire mythology aspects to it, then I'd definitely be interested in, you know, seeing more, but if it's, if it's more like what you're saying about it's a cop trying to be a vampire, like, then I don't know. I, 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 to me, I've seen enough goofy ass cop shows, you know, like that's, that's kind of my, my final <laughs> thought on it, you know? That, that's fair. But, uh, but also again, like this uh, show did air before the law and order actually came out. Law and order came out like 1994, 1995. Right. So, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I, I, I don't know that I'd quantify that as a goofy cop show. You know what I mean? Like, as a police procedural. No, 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 I understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm saying, like, they, they, they did this before the actual good police procedural. You know? Right, was right, like, right. There's like, oh, this is like, this kind of a new thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I think this is... I don't more, think... Yeah. This, is, this is more Angel meets, you know, Miami Vice, 21 Jump Street, like, those kind of police shows. And it's like, oh, it's that kind of... You know, it's it's not quite strictly realistic it's more sensationalized and it's like i don't i don't know i i don't need to see any more sensationalized police type shows you know like but but if it's if it deals more with a lot of the more vampire mythology that's that's the the stuff that spoke to me the most in this where i was like oh that's interesting like i i hope i mean i imagine we like you say we do see more of laquan and jeanette and, and those characters so if that's the case, like I'm sure I yeah. enjoy those those episodes more than like a one off where he's like, Oh, this guy's murdering like postmen and it's like, oh, I'm gonna go full on vampire and eat eat the guy who's murdering postmen. It turns out it's not a guy. It's like a, an old lady who's mad she didn't get her mail and it's like, Okay. You know, like that that one off kind of episode I could probably skip. Fastest way to a cut. One of them, anyway. You guys are starting to sound like my wife. I am trying to quit, all right? I am trying. Will you stop looking at me like that? <laughs> you guys have no idea what it's like to live with an addiction. Oh, 
All right. So, I, I mean, I think that kind of wraps up our thoughts on this first episode of the month-long Fanholes Fright Fest installments. And we will be back next week with another Fanholes Fright Fest installment, so you can find out what crazy film TV thing and what crazy supernatural comic book thing we'll be checking out next week. But for now, we're going to shift gears into our regularly scheduled segment for proper Fanholes podcasts, and that's going to be What is Awesome in Your World This Week? So I'm going to start off with Mike and just ask him what is currently awesome in his world this week. Um, that would have to be Metal Gear Solid Five, which I picked up earlier this week. Uh, nice. I, I, I yeah, I haven't I haven't played it all that much so far, but I mean it's 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 kind of overwhelming at first. There's a lot of like options and customization and like a lot of stuff you have to go through to you know get I get get the full experience, but. I think like how unexpected the game is is really like uh, its selling point. Like you can you can basically set up any way to do the mission you can think of. Basically, like there's like so many options, and like like if there's an objective in like a like say a village or something, it's like you could run around the entire village and come from like another angle behind the village and just run in and get it and leave and that's all you have to do but obviously there's rewards for like taking out enemies and collecting stuff too but i think like the, the sheer amount of options like it, it it's really impressive and it, it may be a little overwhelming but like i'm i'm having fun with it so far but yeah i i'm i'm glad i picked it up and uh i hope to have fun with it for the next month or so probably do you mind if I ask you a question, Mike? Um, I am not a very like knowledgeable person on like the gaming scene right now. Uh, did Hideo Kojima actually contribute a lot to this, or is, was it taken away from him? And this is no, kind no, of he, he 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 did this whole yeah. He was he was in charge of this whole game, and I know Konami like okay, dumped okay. him basically, but it's funny, like, all the Steam reviews for this game, like, every reviewer starts the review off by, with, by, the first line of the review is created by Hideo Kojima, so, like, when you look at the reviews, like, the, the, the first line of every review before you, like, expand it, it's created by Hideo Kojima, because everyone, I guess, is pretty much on his side when it comes to that whole, whole uh, Konami, like, uh, controversy. Yeah, it seemed like there was a lot of stuff going on like that. Like, I remember seeing, I think it was in Australia somewhere, where instead of it being like, a, I, I think there's like a big billboard advertising the game where, you know, it's like, obviously, Konami is in big letters and everything. And I think, like, again, like you're saying, not just in reviews, but I, I noticed, like, this photo I saw, the employees or whoever had, like, put up a paper sign and it's like taped over the Konami sign where it's like Hideo Kojima's game or whatever. You know what I mean? Like where they're, they're sort of obviously taking his his side in the whole, in the whole situation. But yeah, I I found that kind of interesting, you know, not, not being super associated with it, but understanding, uh, you know, uh, some of the the nuances of of what was happening there. I played uh, some of the Metal Gear games that came out, later on on the PS2 and all that stuff like that. And, like, I'll just leave it at this. I think Konami is making a big mistake. Uh, I think PT was a great demo. 
I actually played PT. Scared the shit out of me. I think uh, Silent Hills would have been a great game. So uh, I, I'm glad you enjoyed this game, Mike, and I'm glad that Hideo Kojima is getting like the proper reverence for creating this. But fuck you, Konami, for not letting him make Silent Hills. Come on, fuck you guys. So I think I'll I'll go with my awesome thing real quick. Uh, this week was the first week I read Star Trek Green Lantern, and as most listeners know. I'm kind of a sucker for crossover slash team-ups and stuff like that. And so I, all I'll say is if if you're not a fan of the Abrams New Trek, and if you have a problem with the Rainbow Lanterns, as they're sort of <laughs> a- angrily called by, by certain fanboys, if you have a problem with either of those aspects of the franchises, you this might not be for you because I mean obviously it is it is the new Trek crew you know they're drawn like the J.J. Abrams films so it's like Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto and all that stuff it's not they're not drawn like William Shatner or Leonard Nimoy or anything like that and it does involve a lot of the cast becoming you know like blue and red and yellow lanterns as the the series goes on. Uh, at this point, I've only read a couple issues of it, but you know, I'm I'm into that sort of thing, and I just thought I'd throw it a shout out because I I enjoyed what I read so far. So there's uh, Green Lantern Star Trek if you're interested in that, and then I will wrap it up with uh, turning it over to my man Tony Jackson and just asking him what is awesome in his world this week. Uh, that's actually really cool about the uh, Lantern stuff. I'm actually want to read that. Um, mine is actually kind of themed with the uh, Van Holes uh, Friday Fest. Uh, I picked up a DVD called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell uh, this week. It's actually a BBC show that is really engrossing. It's about two magicians. One is Mr. Norell, who uh, I've mentioned this on about talk. He is a studious, uh, book-learned magician who learns how to do magic, real magic. And magic hasn't been done in 300 years in England. It's during the time of the uh, Napoleonic era, where Napoleon Bonaparte is going against the European countries to make a foothold. And at this point in the series I've watched, it's a miniseries. It's about, uh, I think, eight or ten episodes long. Uh, Jonathan Strange has come into it, and Jonathan Strange is just so enjoyable. He's such a cocky bastard, but he he does magic by his own free will. He doesn't really know how to learn it. He just does it, and it's really a satisfying series. Uh, a lot of good actors in here. I'm not going to waste your time trying to even pretend I know all the names, but all the actors are really enjoyable. They play their roles really well. It's very atmospheric and very well done miniseries. The uh, the cinematography is great. The uh, acting is great. Again, I've said that so many times. But the story is also really good. It's based on a book. Um, our good buddy Justin said it's in his repile. And I want to give a shout out to him because he should really watch the series because, damn, it really impressed me. It's, it's, it's really solid. It's really... A good fun romp. Think about uh, Harry Potter if adults were doing it right. <laughs> that sounds pretty interesting. So, did you just you what you picked up like the DVD set pretty much? Or? Um, there's a DVD set out now. It's a miniseries. Uh, it's like I said, it's got about ten episodes. 
I don't know if they're going to try to do a sequel to it because the writer of the original book says she's going to write another book based on these characters, and I haven't seen the final episode, so okay. anticipation is high. So, but uh, but what I've seen, I, I've gotten through the first disc, and it was about uh, five episodes, and really enjoyable, really good stuff. Cool. No, all sounds great, guys. So uh, that will wrap up our inaugural installment of Fanholes Fright Fest this month. Like I said, we're going to be doing this all month long, so expect three more proper shows with crazy, spooky, Halloween-esque topics and commentary. And, of course, you can email us at fanholespodcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, concerns, if you're mad about all the comments about pretty homeless people, you know, feel free to email in and let <laughs> us know. Uh, we also can be contacted on various social medias. We have a Facebook. We have a Twitter. We have Tumblr. We have Instagram and all those medias. Uh, you can leave us reviews on iTunes. We are on Stitcher Radio where you can stream our episodes. And until the next time, this is going to be Derek, Derek WC, Spookily, signing off. This is Michael. This is Tony. Hey, there's a cat over there. An evil cat. Spooky cat, spooky cat, why are they scaring you?